McMillan Audio presents the Defender-in-Chief audiobook from celebrated constitutional scholar John Yoo. Ask any liberal, and they'll tell you that Donald Trump is a threat to the U.S. Constitution. Yoo argues that this charge has things exactly backwards. He convincingly makes the case that our founding fathers would have seen Trump as returning to their vision of presidential power, even at his most controversial, and that he is, in fact, the Constitution's greatest protector. Victor Davis Hanson calls this provocative audiobook an engaging, completely original, and superbly researched and argued analysis from one of America's top legal minds. Pre-order Defender-in-Chief by John Yu wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. You can also follow us on Facebook as well. We ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or you can go right to nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews for the show. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I am actually in the best health of my life. I've been working out. I've been pumping iron. You know, I've got my 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 button-down shirt with the sleeves rolled up. My bandanas tied around my head, and you know, I, I'm I'm ready to go out there and give it my all for all those listeners. You know, <laughs> and I don't want to disappoint them. There may be three encores. They, they've paid a good money to hear this show, and you'll hey. give them all they need. I mean, look at it this way, Scott. Every podcast ends. That's a fact. But, you know, maybe every podcast that ends someday comes back. (laughs) Jeff on Twitter, at EsotericCD. And as this is part two of our two-part Bruce Springsteen extravaganza, as you well know by clicking on this podcast, we welcome back our uh, guest from episode number one, Dan McLaughlin, senior writer at National Review. You can also find him on Twitter, at Baseball crank dan thanks for coming back it would be awkward if you weren't here for part two well no retreat scott no surrender (laughs) if you weren't with us for part one well you should go back and listen you'd hear dan talk a bit about himself and his new senior writer position at national review you'd also hear all three of us talk through the first what eight years or so of bruce springsteen's career from the very beginning all the way up through the river album And that's where we pick things up today on Episode 2, on Part 2. There's a whole heck of a lot to cram into these 40 years or so, and we'll do the best we can to make it in on time, but uh, no no promises, I suppose. Gentlemen, following the river, where do we go from here? I know there's some things to talk about before we get to the very next album. Well, yeah, I mean, the river river leads to the river tour. And the river tour, if you've ever watched any of the shows listen to the shows it's really it's the point where Bruce started doing really kind of getting a reputation for doing marathon shows uh they had all this new material they had an incredible onstage energy it's the point where Bruce and the band are really playing every single show like men who are facing the gallows and the only way to postpone it is to stay on stage you know know what I've I've taken to calling it and I've never heard anyone else use this line before it's the Roy Baton death march (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because because it, 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 it yeah three and a half hours four hours it, it it's relentless <laughs> and it's also it's also the first time you know bruce had done some overseas shows but it's also the first world tour so they go overseas they start building an audience overseas and in, in europe and 
the combination of that means that by the end of this tour, um, you know, everybody is wrung out. I think Bruce, to some extent, even had some, you know, he had some kind of personal issues he was dealing with by avoiding them by being on stage. When they get to the end of this, uh, you know, they have grabbed the brass ring. They've become uh, Bruce and the band have become stars. Uh, but there's the, the tank is running kind of empty. The thing about these these shows and some of them have now been released officially by Springsteen on his uh, his website, which is just a wonderful resource. I have to say, like Bruce used to have such a sort of a you know, a puckeringly tight hold on all of his live archives. But, you know, as he's gotten older and he's reflected on these things, he, he's releasing these shows now, and so people can pick them up. You really got to hear what his performance. And, and, and actually, Dan mentioned this in our last episode, in Tempe, Arizona, November 5th, 1980. It was right the day after Reagan was elected. Bruce was not happy. Taken out, taken out his frustration by giving one of those marathon shows, and you know it's it's hilarious when you see him like doing a like Cadillac Ranch, and he's he's wearing a suit jacket, and he's got a button-down shirt, and he's doing leg kicks, he's dancing, he's having a hell of a time on stage, and then you realize he's like 16 songs into the set, and he hasn't even broken a sweat. He's like, I'll do this all night. Uh, he's gonna prove it all night, in other words. But at a certain point, you know, near the end of the year, as I said, it, it got to be almost like a death march. He's so long those final shows that close out the the 1980 leg of the tour in nassau coliseum it's out on long island i believe um it you know he's like not only laying down 33 song set lists but he's also doing these like weird depression like montages where he strings together like stolen car wreck on the highway point blank all together and you just have to imagine like what is the audience thinking? Like, you know, they've been dancing to like good times music for a long time. You know, there's like, you know, a crush on you and I'm a rocker and you can look, but you better not touch. And then here, here's, here's 20 minutes devoted to death, despair and longing and loneliness. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's, you know, I think structurally it probably was an opportunity for him to catch his breath. But like in terms of listening to that music now, if you're not there after the fact, it's one of those things you could do it once like a month and then you're just like i can't listen to any more of this stuff because it's too exhausting it's too too like you know overbearing in a way but on the other hand you know who isn't going to want to hear bruce springsteen and the east street band in 1980 playing two hearts
Yeah, or, or Merry Christmas, Baby, you've, you've probably heard. Uh, yeah. version of that from the very special Christmas. That's from the New Year's Eve show in Nassau Coliseum. Right. I mean, there's just so much great music from those things. But it's like, you know, you can't have, you can't go listen. I have all of those shows. That he played three of those shows near the end of the year. You can't listen to them all in a row. If you did, first of all, it's nine hours of your life. You know, and nobody <laughs> has that much time, at least not adults, you know, who have jobs and things to worry about, lives and kids to raise. But, uh, you know, you could also just sense that he was hitting a wall. Like, like where, where, where does it go from here? It almost felt like this was sort of a dead end. You, you, you can't go any more mega or more like, you know, all out balls to the wall than Bruce Springsteen did on the river tour. So I guess it's no surprise, even though it was a huge surprise at the time. In retrospect, maybe it isn't terribly surprising that the next album that got played or got released is all acoustic it's a home demo session that Springsteen recorded mostly in one day, but you know a couple other songs came from before and after, and it's called Nebraska. Uh, I have so very many thoughts about this album, but because I'm such a, a, a hog for time, I was wondering if you guys wanted to chime in first. album I, i'm i'm a fan of the songs from nebraska i'm not really much of a fan of the songs on nebraska i really think that the acoustic uh you know stripped down basically bruce in his bedroom production here i get why he did it um but i think a lot of these songs come out better live uh we've we've not yet heard electric nebraska the legendary electric full band recordings uh, of this album, but I think after 38 years of this music on the road, we can pretty much guess what it sounds like. Um, we may, in fact, by the way, we may get that fairly soon because I think Bruce puts some, at least something out every year and, and uh, he's likely to be, be reaching for that soon. Um, there are some songs on the, on the album that are not that different live, like Nebraska. Uh, Reason to Believe is one of my great favorites on this album. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I had a, a, a full quote from it in my my high school yearbook. Um, you know, <laughs> everyone uh, has that embarrassing high school rock rock song quotation. Mine was <laughs> uh, from the Beatles, John Lennon's Julia. So I, I can identify, Dan. Yeah, well, people finding some reason to believe that's still still something I'll I'll stick up for. I mean, some of these songs, you know, two of them open all night. Highway Patrolman, we'll get to maybe later, but. Um, Bruce redoes them very differently with his um, the Seeger Sessions band, uh, but that's that's decades in the future at this point. Atlantic City, of course, is a a masterpiece, absolute masterpiece, one of Bruce's uh, best songs. I'm still not a big fan of the studio, the 
the Nebraska version of it. Um, the one that, I mean, I think musically the best thing on this album is not on this album, which is when you get to particularly the nineties, you get to the live versions of Atlantic city, uh, with, uh, Roy Bitten doing the, um, you know, this pounding, almost Imperial March kind of dirge, you know, the, and it, it just pounds away and, um, and really I think brings home the ominousness of this song you know the great great chorus you know everything dies that's a fact but maybe everything that dies someday comes back well, i've been looking for a job but it's hard to find it's down here there's just winners and losers and don't get caught on the wrong side of the headline well i'm tired of coming out on the losing end so only last night i met this guy and i'm gonna do a little favor for him because Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies Someday comes back Put your makeup on Fix your hair up pretty Let me meet me tonight In Atlantic City Let me meet me tonight In Atlantic City I wanna meet me tonight In Atlantic City the one song I think really does do really uh, does do well in the studio version uh, is is State Trooper. Uh, it just has this incredibly tight, tense feeling to it of a kind of guy who's kind of paranoid about getting getting pulled over. So there there is. Not necessarily. He's not just paranoid about getting. He's not just paranoid about getting pulled over. There's the implied threat. That's like, if you pull me over, I'm gonna have to shoot you. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna have to kill you, and I don't want to do that, sir. Please don't pull me over. And you know that it's that weird desperado vibe to State Trooper that that ramps that paranoia level up to like 11 or 12 on a 10 scale. And that's what I love about that song so much is that, yeah, it's not just like, uh, you know, I don't want to get pulled over. It's like, I'm going to do something terrible. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And it comes through in that that, that rhythmic thrum of his guitar. Maybe you got a kid. Maybe you got a pretty wife. The only I mean, I'll wrap this up. I don't think there's a bad song on this album, uh, but uh, I, I do prefer the way that Bruce takes these songs out and grows them over time uh, in front of an audience with the full band. I like Nebraska, and I do like the album versions of these songs, the ones that ended up on Nebraska. This, in a way, is sort of the you know the, the accidental album that Bruce has spent the rest of his years sort of chasing, trying to, to recreate the... These demos were meant to be played for the band and then probably figuring out a way to make them full band material, and eventually some did, as, as, as Dan mentioned. But instead, these just, you know, four-track guitar vocal demos are what ended up being the actual album of Nebraska. 
And uh, I, I do like it an awful lot. Dan talked about uh, Atlantic City, which is fantastic. I, I did not realize until listening to things much more closely for this show that one of my favorite Bruce-worshipping bands, Mara, which got a mention on last show, too, uh, totally cribbing Atlantic City in one of their best songs, It's Only Money, Tyrone. They have a line about, uh, um, even if you don't want it, some someday it comes back, which is exactly the sentiment and used in the same way as Bruce does in Atlantic City. Um, I love that. My favorite part might be that back-to-back of Highway Patrolman and State Trooper, uh, almost because you get two sides of the story. In Highway Patrolman, this is the story from the Highway Patrolman's point of view, who's uh, who's chasing his brother up toward the uh, the Canadian border and eventually lets him lets him go despite his crime. Man turns his back on family. Well, he just ain't no good. Well, I chased him through them county roads to a sign says Canadian border five miles from here. I pulled over the side of the highway and watched his taillights disappear. Me and Frankie laughing and drinking Nothing feels better than blood on blood Taking turns dancing with Marie As the band plays Night of the Johnstown Flood I catch him when he streams Like any brother Man turns his back on his family But he just ain't no good And State Trooper, the very next song, tells it from from Frankie's point of view. Trying to get away. Don't pull me over, like Jeff said. Uh, The threats, maybe you got a kid, maybe you got a pretty wife. But our character here has nothing to lose and a clear conscience about the things that I've done. Uh, wonderfully done, this pulsing, hypnotic rhythm to it. Uh, the back-to-back of Highway Patrolman and State Trooper is just outstanding. We learn a bit more about Bruce and his dad and my father's house. Um, that that Hammond, There's a little Hammond organ part there that peeks through in the final verse. Uh, I like that an awful lot. And, and you know, it's Bruce driving by his his house, this house he grew up in over and over again, his, his father's house, as the title says. Um, this is, this Nebraska, and the vocals throughout are, are sort of shrouded and, and, and ghost-like. Um, and the way it's recorded, again, was not necessarily meant to be an album, but it is. Um, and it's a fantastic album. I uh, will just lay my cards down on the table right now and say that I think this is the best Bruce Springsteen album of this latter half of his career. And that isn't to say that I, you know, I think like, oh, well, Bruce Springsteen should have become an acoustic musician from here on out. In fact, when he would try to return to this format in later years, it didn't work nearly as well. And you will hear me bitching about that (laughs) in future minutes of this episode. But I will say that I don't think there's a single song on this album that was done better live with the band than it was done on this record. So I guess I have to strongly disagree with Dan there. Like Atlantic City, I think that, first of all, that song is a full, it's a full band performance Without with only band. one man. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, you've got, you've got like, you've got, you know, harmonica, you've got guitar, you've got vocals and backing vocals, you've got mandolin plunking away in the background there, you've got these howls, the woo. 
oh my god what a wonderful song that is and every lyric in that song is perfect you know where you know he talks about how like you know you know i've got debts that no honest man can pay well i got a job and tried to put my money away but i got debts that no honest man can pay so i drew what i had from the central trust and i bought us two tickets on that coast city bus The idea here is that, like you know, you know, Bruce has now become a voracious reader and a literateur under the tutelage of John Landau, and so you see him writing some of these incredibly crisp lines where the implications are there, but they're not spelled out. And in fact, I think he would actually, unfortunately, start to spell things out a little bit too much later on during his career. Maybe he lost confidence in his ability to, uh, you know, to to play the minimalist role the way he plays it on this album. But Atlantic City is a perfectly gnomic song. We don't know what kind of trouble that guy's in. We just know that he's in trouble and we know that he's heading to no good and he's going to make some desperate decisions because that that's that's what he's got to do. Uh, that's what he feels that he has to do. The other thing I'll point out about Nebraska is that for an album <clears throat> that is often you know, I guess people, nobody pans it because it has such a high critical reputation. But people will say, like, well, you know, the one thing you can say against it is it's so monochromatic because, you know, it's just home demos, a guy with an acoustic guitar, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but for an album that is produced that way, there's a huge amount of variety on this record. There are upbeat numbers. There's stuff like Open All Night, you know, and Used Cars. There are, like, big dirges, like Mansion on the Hill and My Father's House. There are peppy folk songs like Reason to Believe, which has a dark as hell lyric. Then there are, you know, the weird, you know, suicide-inspired grooves, the band Suicide, like State, State Trooper. Mm-hmm. You've got Highway Patrolman. And then you've got what I think is... You know, there's a reason that the album was titled after the song Nebraska. That is a singular song in Springsteen's career, and and it sounds like he was again. You talk about Bruce reading books and how that affects his songwriting. It sounds like almost Flannery O'Connor. This is about yes. the Charles Starkweather murders. He's probably also watching Terry Malick. He was probably watching Badlands, which you know you know he must have because he actually tall he called a song Badlands back in 1978, and now he's writing about the film Badlands, which was inspired by the Starkweather murders, and. You know, it's it's almost it, it reminds me, uh, Scott. You and I we talked about this on our Elvis Costello episode. You know the song "Psycho." Oh yeah, uh, where 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 you know Elvis just sings it with that detachment mm-hmm. that is you know, completely you know emotionally vacant, uh, and in fact 
that song is infinitely more lurid than what you get on Nebraska, where it's just Starkweather saying, like, you know, I saw my baby, she was twirling a baton on the lawn, we went off on a spree, and we killed people, and then she's, he's like, well, you know, what, what, what do I want, you know? Uh, you know, I'd like to have my baby sitting on my lap when I'm when I'm getting fried in the electric chair, which Starkweather more or less actually did do. He said, like, you know, if you're going to kill me, you should kill her, too. She's just as guilty as I am. She was like 13 years old and he was 18 at the time. This is why this this, you know, the series of killings is so well known and, and so sort of famously barbaric. But again, that the final line when they say, you know, you know the mister, when they asked me why I done what it is I did. Uh, he says, I, I guess there's just a meanness in this world. There's no answer. It's just like, you know what? People are cruel. People are vicious. There's no explanation for it. There's no moral justification for it. It just happens, and you have to accept it. They declared me unfit to live. Said into that great void, my soul be heard. Want to know why I did what I did? Sir, I guess it's just a meanness in this world. That is a quantum leap in writing for Bruce Springsteen from anything he had done before. I am so impressed by it. And the other story about Nebraska is how the hell did he get this thing released? You got to remember <laughs> that, uh, you know, yeah, up num- until this number point, one album, the, uh, num- the last album. Okay. So like he had, you know, he had struggled all throughout his career to get, you know, major commercial success and acceptance. He hadn't really actually really achieved it until the river. Yes, you know, Born to Run eventually like struggled its way to number three on the charts, but it didn't sell, you know, a huge amount of copies. Darkness on the Edge of Town didn't even get that high. Critics loved it. The live shows were fantastic. Um, then finally, Hungry Heart goes to top 10 in the charts. The river gets to number one and he's big, but he still doesn't have like, you know, that FU money credibility level with most record labels that uh, an artist should have when they're going to pull a stunt like this. (laughs) He went to Columbia and he said like, okay, here's me sitting in a darkened attic in my home playing depressing murder ballads and songs about my father and, uh, you know, like stuff about like fleeing from the cops and, and, and I want you to release it as an album. And they said, yes. Why did they say yes? Well, maybe because the music industry was a little bit more forgiving back then than it is these days. But the other reason they said yes, and this is probably the, the part of the whole you know Nebraska story that isn't as well known, is that Bruce and John Landau basically promised Columbia Records that, okay, you let us release this album as is. We feel it's an important artistic statement that we need to make, and we guarantee you that the next thing we release is going to be a mega pop smash, go for the gold ring, number one hit album. We promise. And that's how you get Born in the USA.
they were right. 30 million plus sold. Uh, seven top 10 hits off of Born in the USA. Everybody had a copy of it in the in the mid 80s. Uh, Ronald Reagan used, of course, the title track during the campaign uh, to uh, not to its intended effect. Uh, the, the title track "Born in the USA," and yet, guys, uh, I got to tell you, I don't like this album. I don't like "Born in the USA," and in fact, listening back to it uh, in preparation for the show, it, it's the reason. It is the reason, really, why I spent so much time trying to keep Bruce away from 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 my ears. Uh, there's some things on here that work. Uh, let, me, let me start there. Uh, Dancing in the Dark is a great song, and it's one of the big songs. I think it was the first single from Born in the USA. And, of course, has that new wavy, you know, guitarless sort of thing that maybe Springsteen fans weren't uh, accustomed to, used to, or even in some quarters, I guess, accepting of. But, man, oh, man, does it work. It works because you can feel through Bruce's vocals, him trying to just bust out uh, of the song, of the rhythm, of, 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 of everything happening in those lyrics. Uh, Clarence Clemens' sax solo on the fade out is fantastic. It, the bones on this thing are just fantastic. and it all Clarence Clemens' sax solo on Dancing in the Dark, I swear to God, it sounds like it could be the sequel to what you hear on Hollow Notes' is Man Eater sure. from the year before. <laughs> and you know what? That's just fine with me. Love this song too. I think it's a classic. It's a great. It's comparatively song. restrained in in terms of what Clarence usually does, and obviously mm-hmm. that's a different sound. I mean, the other thing is Scott mentioned this being the first single. It was also a big deal and a big event at the time that Bruce put out a video, right? Well, Bruce Springsteen is doing a music video, right? That this was this was still this was in the you know right around the, the time that MTV was really peaking. And so there was there was still a sense that there were a few kind of holdouts who had not lowered themselves to release a music video in a sense. And so Bruce puts out this video and the video itself is, you know, it becomes a, a sensation. Iconic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's like for, for his first major video, you can't do much better than having Monica from Friends <laughs> be the girl that you call up on stage to dance. Who yeah, knew, that, I, who knew that, that, that Courtney Cox was going to become super famous afterwards either? It's just like, you know, kismet. Huh? Yeah, I mean, and one of the fun things, I think Bruce mentions even in his book, that, like people still ask him today if he just put some girl at random out of the audience. <laughs> like, that's one of the 
most recognizable actresses of the past generation. Somebody who's been in like a huge number of these cultural touchstones, but um, and and uh, but you, you know the 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 other by the the other elephant in the room about the dancing in the dark video, we can't skip over. Bruce is doing the Carlton. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I mean, Bruce, uh, if you listen to his, he pulls it off. He pulls it off. And by the way, here's the thing. If you read his autobiography and I strongly recommend his autobiography, I'm actually very skeptical about like rock star autobiographies because they're rock stars. They're not writers for the most part. What do these people have to say about their lives? I think other people usually better about writing about them than they are themselves. Bruce's is an exception to that rule. It's kind of like I think Dylan's, uh, which is a much different kind of an autobiography. It's more of a you know an imagistic autobiography. But but Bruce's autobiography is called Born to Run. Really good, and he talks a lot about how dancing was important to him. It was a big thing for his mom. It was huge for him as a kid. He realized like, hey, I can get girls if I just pull stupid moves on the floor. <laughs> I don't even have to be good at this. I just have to get out there and have the guts to try. And if I try, guess what? I can pull the hottest chicks in the room because all the other guys are just standing there on the wall, nervous and afraid to look dumb. And guess what? I might look dumb, but they still appreciate the effort. <laughs> so, you know, that, that sort of takes you like, you know, 20 years later to, to dancing in the dark, which is, is really kind of like, you know, the culmination of that entire thing. Yeah. Get out there and do the frog. You might look <laughs> stupid, but you, 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 you're probably going to succeed if you give it a shot. Oh, uh, and I really like Downbound Train as well. Uh, working on the highway is a good tune. But the big ones, uh, the ones that everybody knows, Born in the USA, uh, Glory Days, I'm Going Down, I'm on Fire, Cover Me. Man, oh man, those songs have never done anything for me. And I tried very hard to figure out why. Why don't I like those songs that everybody else loves and bought 30 million copies of? The best I could come up with is, is, is this. I think almost all those tracks really feature this sort of steady, unceasing backbeat to them. And they all have these repeated musical phrases. I mean, like, Cover Me is just that, that first, whatever, six seconds sort of repeated over and over, over again. Over and over again, Born in the yeah. USA is that same, over and over. I'm going down, over and over. Even I'm on fire... It was just that doon do 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 do, and that's pretty much it. And I, 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 if I have to point to one reason why I think those songs a work commercially because they they do stick in your head. You remember those hooks. There's no doubt about it. But Born in the USA, I don't know how many times I've heard it, but I never want to hear it again. I, and I, I, I can't imagine how that became a hit on a, on a like top forty in which you'd play it, you know, six times every eight, eight hours because. It really is a repetitive kind of song in my mind. Now, that's a great set of lyrics. I, I'm not going to dismiss that from, from, from Springsteen. Born in the USA is a great set of lyrics. Uh, and even Cover Me, if you hit me at the right time, I like it a little bit. But by about the two-minute mark, I don't. Because, again, it's just that repeated musical phrase over and over.
And so I'm not I'm not the guy here to tell you how great Born in the USA is. I'm, I'm the guy to tell you why Born in the USA actually prevented me from becoming a bigger Bruce Springsteen fan for literally decades. So I don't like Born in the USA. Dan, your whole life has been building up to this moment. Defend yeah, Born in the yeah. USA. I am the guy. I am that guy. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say there. Look, I'm not impartial here. There are two albums uh, in my life that have meant more to me than any others, uh, and we'll get to the other one later in the show. But um, and this is one of them. And look, you know, they say that the, the the music that's on the radio when you're 14 years old is like the most important thing to you. And I turned 14, you know, as a high school student in North Jersey in the fall of '85, at the absolute pinnacle of Born in the USA madness. I mean, for about six months to a year, Bruce was the biggest thing music um you know briefly even bigger i think than you know michael jackson or prince or madonna uh it, it and so you know he was absolutely ubiquitous and we had i remember in the fall of 85 we had backstreets which was i guess the, the biggest bruce cover band in jersey come to our high school and they packed like a thousand people in the gym and um i mean this album is the popular success of this album. I mean, Scott mentioned the, the, the seven consecutive singles and, and, and first of all, you got to remember too, back in those days, uh, artists would pump out singles to the radio much faster in succession, uh, than they do today. So this is between, you know, the, those singles peaked on the charts between June of 84 and January of 86, I think up until the last decade or so, Bruce, the only other artists ever to have seven top 10 singles off an album was like Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson. Um, so this album is massive. Um, and it is, it is one of those albums to me that is a perfect album, not even Bruce's best album. I mean, I think born to run is still his best album, but a perfect album in the sense that is perfectly balanced and tempoed. You know, you've got six songs on each side. You've got, I'm on fire is, is, is a little over two and a half minutes and all the other songs on this are between 315 and 450 um so you have that that kind of perfect balance of rock and pop perfect balance of you know each song i mean as scott says they you know the songs do have these kind of uh earworm repetitive musical sounds to them um the highlight to me the biggest highlight to me of this album is is the start of side two no surrender and bobby jean um, you know, those are no surrender is I, I mentioned on the first show, uh, you know, songs that that, that are just kind of Clarence's or Danny's. So this is this is Max Weinberg's song, among all of Bruce's songs, maybe even more than Candy's Room. I mean, he just totally dominates the sound of no surrender. Um, and Bobby Jean is is a song that is written. Um, you know, it is a farewell to Stephen Van Zandt leaving the band uh, and Bruce writes it as a love song. But. Um, it, it works equally well, whether it's a farewell to a romance or a farewell to a friend that is that is going away and that you have this, um, you know, the, the, this just early bond that that cannot be broken. Um, I mean, that is probably, you know, that is one of the songs that has really always hit me and stuck with me. Busted out of 
I, one, one thing we do need a brief word on here is the politics of Born in the USA. Um, and, and yeah, Reagan didn't know anything about rock, and obviously some speechwriter gave him... <laughs> I, I, blame, say, I, blame, but... I blame George Will. George Will famously yes. went to, like, yeah. a concert, and he wrote, like, a Washington Post column. George Will, wonderful man. Great, great opinionator. I have so much respect for him, but he clearly missed the point. He was probably sitting in the back of the arena, and he just heard, you know, you know the thunding chords, and he heard Bruce singing, born in the USA, and he didn't listen carefully enough to the lyrics, and he wrote about that song. Wow, how patriotic that is, and then some Reaganite speechwriter <laughs> picked it up and then put it into that thing, and thus the legend is born of yeah, and, uh, Republicans and, misappropriating the message of the song. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I can totally see if you heard the song first live how you would get nothing out of it but the chorus. Um, I think Bruce also bears some of the responsibility. I mean, you know, you can't mistake what the lyrics do, but at the same time, I mean, look. The flag is on the front cover of the album. The flag is on the back cover of the album. The videos were all doused in this kind of gauzy Americana. The tour posters, the tour staging, the flag is everywhere. So Bruce is capitalizing on a a wave of patriotic feeling that's coming across in the country. But the thing about Born in the USA, the politics of it, is that, you know, you have to remember, obviously, the Vietnam War was enormously divisive, socially divisive in the late 60s. And you had people who didn't want to hear a bad word about the war and Curtis LeMay wanted to bomb Vietnam back to the stone age. And you had at the other opposite end of the scale, you had the protesters who were like calling people baby killers and spitting on the vets when they returned. And I think, you know, by the early eighties, Bruce writes this in 82, you know, the, the war was lost. The divisions obviously had not disappeared, but people had moved on to other things, but there was this growing, I think, bipartisan, sense in the country that whatever you thought of the war that the country had really just just treated the vets badly and sent them off to this this war that it wasn't prepared to win that that they got you know screamed at and got no thanks when they got home this is the early 80s is the period when you know guys like john mccain and john kerry who had very different views of the war um both got elected to congress it's the time when the vietnam memorial gets built so you have this period of time when you know, even people like Billy Joel and, and Huey Lewis, who are not exactly the most political of artists, are writing songs about the Vietnam vets. So what yes, Bruce does, does anybody really want to remember Goodnight Saigon? I mean, God, <laughs> we had we did our show on Billy Joel, and but oh, that was that was a tough one to listen through. And and as the resident Huey Lewis uh, fan on the show, I must point out that Huey did not write "Walking on a Thin Line." That was an outside songwriter, but the band made it their own. Yeah, and Bruce, Bruce, and Bruce, of course, takes the title of this album from uh, uh, from a book, Born on the Fourth of July, that later becomes a, a Tom Cruise movie. Um, but I mean, if you listen to the song, though, it really is. I mean, yeah, he's uh, go and kill the yellow man is the only reason he can think of for the war itself. But but by and large, the story the story is not so much against the war or about the war as it is about the veteran uh, who you know gets shipped off there for no particular reason of of you know, patriotism or, or belief in the cause and he comes home and things aren't good and his brother's dead. and everything. So it really is. It's just it's just the story uh, of the vet. And so it's not it is not a great patriotic song, but it is not sort of an anti-patriotic song in that sense. Um, and, you know, the it, it, the entire album, though, has this very um, it has this dichotomy because there is this tremendous upbeat feel to it. Uh, and yet most of these songs lyrically 
um, you know, with the arguable exception of something like like No Surrender, um, most of them do have something, you know, they're tense or they're depressing or, um, I mean, you listen to the Nebraska Sessions version of uh, Working on the Highway, which is a song called Child Bride, <laughs> and it's this tremendously depressing kind of acoustics track, and yet it's, it's, it's the exact same lyrics. Bruce, Bruce has changed just about nothing, um, but he's turned it into this kind of up-tempo rockabilly track. Um, I'm on fire, by the way, one, um, one note on that, you know, that, that's one out, that's one song I think that actually does not work as well live. Um, it really doesn't get better than it is in the studio. It, it's probably my least favorite song on the album, but you know, it's also worth noting that, that there are a couple of songs of Bruce's, that one and uh, secret garden, which we'll come to in the nineties that are disproportionately enormously popular with Bruce's female fans. <laughs> So, but I, I think as we discussed on the first show, I'm on fire is also revisiting some of the lyrical territory that Bruce did in, in both the fever and fire in the seventies. And I, I, I think the fever is the best of the three of those songs. Sometimes it's like someone took a knife, baby, edgy and dull, and cut a six inch valley through the middle of my skull. At night I wake up with the sheets soaking wet and a freight train running through the middle of my head and we Listen, I, I, I'm surprised to find myself in the position of saying this, but I really want to make a strong defense of Born in the USA, the song, because uh, I, I actually think that that's the best possible song that it could have been. And I've always been kind of peeved at people who say like, oh, well, you know, you know, Springsteen sold out. He made it this big anthemic thing with the synths and the big, you know, sort of almost programmed sounding Max Weinberg drum beats. Um if you've heard the original demo version of this song from the Nebraska sessions, the home the home demo stuff, the same reel that the rest of the album was taken from, uh, the acoustic version of Born in the USA, it was released on tracks. Mm-hmm. And and Springsteen has you know since then he's performed it in that manner. In fact, when I saw him live back in 1999 or 2000, I can't remember, um, that's the way he did it at the show. Uh, that's terrible. Uh, I have to say, that's a terrible song. Uh, a great lyric that is sacrificed to a, a, a sort of a weird, tuneless, acoustic dirge of, of a song. It doesn't work, and it never would have worked. Born in the USA, as you hear it on that album, yes, with that big, you know, major key, and then Bruce, like, you know, shouting at the top of his lungs. I mean, the entire song, it's just him at 10, just shouting every word out. That's the best song that Born in the USA ever could have been. And I never have understood why people claim, like, oh, this is why I, I make fun of George Will. Like, how could you misunderstand the meaning of this song? The music doesn't disguise it. If they had buried his vocals in the mix or something like that, okay, maybe then, maybe then I, I, I you know, I buy that there was some sort of sleight of hand that was being done here. That they, you know, that Springsteen was trying to slip one by you. But no, he's straight up born down in a dead man's town. The first kick I took is when I hit the ground. End up like a dog that's been beat too much. You spend half your life just to covering up. There you first verse. This before he even talks about Vietnam. All right. First verse is that. So, 
there's there's no hiding the point of view that he's coming from here. So I've never understood why people, you know, didn't grasp it. I guess maybe it was the 80s and everyone was just like doing lots of cocaine or something like that. I, I never have grasped, even when I was five years old. Of course, I had my dad to explain it to me. You know, my dad, you know, was like a very liberal guy back then. He hated Vietnam too and all that. So he told me all about it. That probably helped me. But like, I think he's just crystal clear on this song. And I think it is a fantastic song. It's one of his great songs. And the fact that it is monochromatic, it, it, it's a Springsteen song that doesn't have any contrasting middle eight. There's no alternate, you know, melodic theme there. It's just, you know, da 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 the whole time for four and a half minutes. It still works. It works for its time, and I think it works beyond its time. I could say the same about most of the rest of the music on this album, and I have to join, not entirely, I, I, I'm concurring in part and dissenting in part, <laughs> all right? I, I'm, I'm going to write my own opinion on Born in the USA, but I, I, I'm half on Scott's side and half on Dan's side. I think there is stuff here that does hold up. I've actually always kind of enjoyed working on the highway, you know, because, you know, as Dan pointed out, the, you took this very dark and bleak thing and, and turned it into this upbeat rockabilly song. And it, yeah, it's about like, you know, like you, you, you've done some, some pretty horrible crimes and now you're, you're breaking rocks on the side of the road in a highway chain gang, you know, for the prison. Um, I, down down train is great i think i am on fire is one of those songs that as dan pointed out kind of dies a death alive but on this album it's good and on a better sequenced version of this album nobody would complain about it dancing in the dark we've already talked about i think it's a fantastic song i think it's actually will make my top five at the end of the show it's a legitimate classic and i will argue that if um you know, if this was any other synth pop band from the early 80s, mid 80s doing this, uh, and of course there were tons of them, most of them coming out of Britain at this time who were making it big on MTV and thus making it big in the charts, no one would complain one iota about it. It would be a beloved, great 80s track that we always thought like, wow, hey, that aged really well, didn't it? It has aged well. It's only because it's Springsteen that we, we, we think ill of it because we think it's a sellout. You know, Springsteen, the story of the song is, of course, quite famous, uh, where I think it was John Landau, his manager, you know, he's listening to you know the proposed track listing that Bruce had submitted to him for the album. And he said, like, hey, you know what? This is, this is all well and good, but there's no single on it. And then Springsteen, <laughs> like, snapped back at him. He's like, hey, you know what? Why don't, I, why don't you write the effing song, huh? 
If there's no single, why don't you go write the single? And then Springsteen, you know, sort of tucked his tail between his legs, went home and, and wrote Dancing in the Dark in one night. And it was recorded the next day. And thank God for that, because I think it's a fantastic song. Messages keep getting clearer. Radio's on and I'm moving around the place. I check my look in the mirror. Wanna change my clothes, my hair, my face, and I ain't getting nowhere. I'm just living in a dump like this. There's something happening somewhere. Baby, I just know you But I'll tell you a song that makes me literally want to put a gun to my head, and I'm glad that I live in Chicago and we can't have guns. Uh, that song is Glory Days. I recognize the fact that there's a funny and interesting lyric behind Glory Days. I get it. It's about getting old, you know, sitting around the bar, bloviating about the good times and, you know, how everything was, was nicer. It's, a, it's Al Bundy talking. You remember Married with Children? Four Al touchdowns, Bundy. Jeff. Four touchdowns. Four touchdowns, exactly. Four touchdowns in this high school football game, glory days, right? But I will have to quote our friend Dave Weigel, uh, who said this, and I, and I, I warned him I was going to be doing this on the show. He says that, you know, he said, lyrics aside, glory days is the worst popular Springsteen song. It's a puddle of beer vomit and sawdust set to music. And, and that's it why it's awesome. No, I, I flipping hate that, that, that weird baseball. PA organ, like you know, you're you're at the stadium and it's like da 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 da. da. There's a shrillness to the organ sound all throughout this album. Yes, the Danny Federici organ sound that I think dates it, and I think is a huge problem that I have with almost the all of the songs. Their arrangements just kill me because that it was it was obviously commercial smash in 1984 and 1985 but you talk about sounds that have dancing in the dark has dated well those those cool synth sounds that's dated well but glory days that baseball organ chintz i oh it, it, it sand blasts my brain away and every time i had to listen to this song more than like Two times, only two times. <laughs> and of course, the problem is that you've listened to it two times. Uh, well, it's going to be dancing around in my head for the next two months, maybe two years. And I regret it intensely. I hate that song with an abiding passion. And that's why we have to drop the clip in here so you all can suffer along with me.
By the way, has Bruce ever explained the speedball fastball? Oh, I, mean, I have no idea what that's about. And you know, he had a friend. He actually did have a friend who was a baseball player. All right, that that would that's an autobiographical line. I, I I never understood why he did that. Did he think it was like a folksy affectation? Maybe in Central Jersey they say speedball. <laughs> I don't know. You know, Dan might know more about this. He's from the tri-state area. I'm not. I, I don't know where the hell that came from. But again, just like one of those many things where I, I, could, I could write uh, an essay for Slate or something like that about why I hate Glory Day so much. And it would be the most wonderful piece of bilious filth that you've ever read because that's how deep my loathing for it runs. And that's all despite the fact that the lyric is, is actually quite clever. Um, but you know, I I, uh, I think the other thing. Unless does, does anybody have any final thoughts on the album as it is released that they want to share before I move on to what I I think is is the real tragedy of Born to Run, which is is the stuff that was left off of it. Before we get to there, does anyone have anything they want to say? No, I mean I I just I would just add that, that I do think Glory Days is. I mean, look, it it sounds like bar band music because that's basically who these guys are. Um, and you know, and that's what that's what Bruce is shooting for. Yeah, well, he should have been shooting for something a little different. I know he made a promise to his record label. It's like, okay, you let me release Nebraska. It's not your cup of tea. By the way, Nebraska got to number two. It didn't flop by any means. I mean, it didn't obviously spit out any singles or anything like that. But it wasn't a failure. Um, and then you know, Bruce said, okay, thank you. Let me do that. And now here, here is your big pop mega stardom album. And of course. Born in the USA, I think it was what Scott. You might know this. Uh, is, is it ten times platinum? I think that's how much it's, got, it's sold. Yeah, it's got the diamond award. I, I don't think that uh, they go higher than or diamond. The diamond is ten million sold. So it's it's like it's like this in Thriller, which are basically the yes. biggest albums of the entire decade, yes. right? Yes. You know, like, you know, you know, Thriller got the kids. It got the African-American market and it got, you know, even, you know, normal middle America. But this is sort of its inverse, whereas like, you know, everybody in like, you know, between Inland Empire, California and, you know, uh, Asbury Park, New Jersey, but in the USA. And, you know, uh, it was the biggest selling album of his career. What would it have been like if he had put together a different album, an album that includes all of the incredible outtakes from this era. That's the thing. I could make you an alternate Born in the USA that has some of the songs that are on the actual album as released, but is more, mostly comprised of the things that he left on the cutting room floor. And that album, for me at least, would rank up there with The Wild, The Innocent, and The East Street Shuffle which you guys know is my favorite Springsteen album of all time. It would rank up there with Darkness on the Edge of Town. It would rank up there with The River. Well, deep in the dark forest The forest filled with rain Beyond a strip of Maryland pines There's a river without a name In the cold black water Now Johnson and here stands he stares across to the lights of the city and dreams of where he's been. Oh, mama, 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 come quick. I got the shakes and lonely bees to throw your arms around me in the cold dark night. Hey, now, mama, don't shut out the light. Don't you shut out the light. Don't you shut out the light. Don't you shut out the light. 
that's the album that we didn't get and we never really even knew existed until the release of tracks and of course there have been several subsequent releases as dan pointed out there may be sort of like a, an archival release of these entire sessions coming up in the near future it's 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 well past time uh this could have been truly great and it wasn't and and, and the thing i want to focus on there are so many songs you know my love won't let you down this hard land you know lion's den you know brothers under the bridge these are so many so many fantastic songs but the one that i actually will say right now is and this is going to surprise people who've just heard me crap all over born in the usa my single favorite bruce springsteen song of all time more than incident on 57th street more than you know born to run or thunder road it's frankie Sending the stairs, ah, oh, Frankie, my one. Check your makeup in the mirror. Come on, babe, let's go. We'll dance round this dirty town till the night is all done. Let all the minor things sleep alone tonight. Let all the minor kings lose their thrones tonight. Don't worry about us, babe. We'll be alright. Everybody's dying This town's closing down They're all sitting down at the courthouse Waiting for him to take the flag down I see strange flashes In the sky up above I spend the night at the drive-in With the one that I love And just the stars The song Frankie, which actually does date from 1976 It's an old song that he had played live on tour back and during the, the that interregnum between Born to Run and Darkness, but he revived with the band during the Electric Nebraska sessions. Uh, this is the only Bruce Springsteen song that was played at my wedding that we danced to. Uh, it is the most romantic song he has ever written, and I think it is maybe one of the most romantic songs that I have ever heard. The same way that, that people grew up in the fifties and sixties, listened to like up on the roof or, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, then he kissed me and, 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 and felt themselves melting inside. Uh, that's the way I feel about a song like Frankie, which I think is, is every piece of musical and lyrical genius that Bruce Springsteen will ever bring to bear. It's structurally too. It, it does harken back to his earlier years. You have the contrasting middle eights and surprising key changes. Um, but I just love the opening line where he says, you know, dark weekends in the sun out on Chelsea Road, D descending the stairs of Frankie, my love. Check your makeup in the mirror. Come on, babe. Let's go. We're going to dance around this dirty town till the night is all done. And uh, this... It, it's hard to convey the feeling in your heart, you know, the sort of the welling up of romantic feeling that you get from a song. But Frankie is, to my mind, his greatest song, or you know, if not his greatest, then it feels very close to it. And I just wonder why did it languish in the vaults for thirty years? Talk softly tonight, little angel. You 
and the musically, Frank is so gorgeous. Even if you even if you hardly even absorb the words, and probably the first time or two I listened to it, certainly I didn't. Uh, you just take in the music; it's so gorgeous, and um, you know. And and I mean, some of the songs you can understand why they didn't make it, like "Brothers Under the Bridges." Tremendous song, but it sounds so much like no, like no surrender that I can see why. Exactly. Yes. Didn't want, but you know, it's even got the whole lie, 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 lie. I, I, I could see why he didn't want both of them on the. It's same the same album. thing with like the promise and racing in the streets. You had to have mm-hmm. one or the other. You got to pick one, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, and, and and you've got. I mean, you've got. Um, I mean, Lions Den is this wonderful doo-wop piece. Um, and, Daniel and, waiting in the lion's den. It's just, it's just, it's so confident. It's a swing song. It's got a real swing to it. Yeah, my love will not let you down is probably my favorite song in the entire tracks box set. It's, it's. I mean, it, it is very much hits. Uh, you know, the the exact kind of, um, you know, hard earnestness uh, that really appeals to me so much about Bruce. One of the other great ones that's on the 18 tracks uh, said is None But the Brave. It's got this beautiful sax solo uh, and, and, and um, you know, really, really uh, powerful lyrics. I mean, my I think you could have if Bruce if Bruce wanted to just sort of stretch it all out and make bank, because, of course, the Born in the USA tour was not quite as frenetic as the river, but the tour was even bigger. You know, he moves into stadiums now. It's even longer. I mean, he could have, I mean, this is just, you know, my, Bruce could have followed up this album, even without Trapped, by the way, which is, which he releases on the We Are The World album, which is, which is also a wonderful song. Yeah, fantastic. It's a live performance, I think, but it's just, yeah, again, an amazing song. Yeah, but you could do, right, seven songs on each album, right? This is just my quick, what you could have followed up Born in the USA with, just with songs written in this period or recorded in this period that, that, that were fresh, that he could have turned out that would have been another monumental uh, commercial and artistic success you put on your first side my love will not let you down lion's den pink cadillac none but the brave frankie brothers under the bridges and jersey girl which he releases on the the live uh box set the second side you got this hard land which i personally prefer the the version on the the uh the greatest hits album that's wrong stand on it which actually is even better live by the way if you've ever heard it done with the saxophone Right. Uh, Shut Out the Light, uh, Murder Incorporated, uh, which I think we'll get to, Light of Day, which he gives away to Joan Jett. That's a great song, um, too. <laughs> great song, and her version is very new wavy, but when you get to Bruce doing it live, it's very much heavy guitar, and it's just the, the way he, like, I, I think on the, the, the MTV show that he does, uh, when he just yes. comes barreling out of the long talking interlude in the middle, you know, 
we got thrown out of work on the Kokomo. Don't ask me what I'm doing. I don't know. And he just barrels out there. And then you close it up with Johnny Bye Bye, which I, I don't know if Jeff, if you wanted to had, had thoughts about a couple more of these songs. Uh, I mean, I, okay, Johnny Bye Bye. Okay, the, the, you have to understand, like, <clears throat> sort of, there, there are parallel tracks running in Springsteen's career at this point. <clears throat> Stuff he takes to the band acoustic home demos and then he's doing these more kind of synth based thin new wave influence kind of a bit of, of a suicide influence i think uh uh and johnny bye-bye comes out of that you know he, he, this is a song where it is acoustic guitar there's a drum machine but there's a lot of synth but what is the song about well okay if you are a, a rock historian like me or maybe a big stones fan or chuck berry fan you know the song bye-bye johnny which is, you know, sort of his follow-up to Johnny Be Good, right? You know, you know Johnny Be Good, you know, he's the guy who you could play guitar like ringing a bell. And then Bye Bye Johnny is when he gets on that bus and he goes to the promised land out in Los Angeles and he makes it big. Well, Johnny Bye Bye is that kind of a conceit, but reflected through the story of Elvis Presley. And that's what it is, you know. You know, she drew out her money from a central tr- from the central trust, and and put her little boy on a big city bus, sending him out into the world to become a hero. That was Elvis Presley, and then the lyric is again just so wonderfully and quietly observed. They found him slumped up against a drain with a whole lot of trouble running through his veins. Johnny, bye bye, Johnny. Johnny, bye bye. You didn't have to die, Lord. You didn't have to die. And that was Elvis. That was Bruce's comment on Elvis, who was his first hero ever, and the guy he loved more than anyone else. He performed his songs in concert throughout the '70s, even into the '80s, all the time. And to have such sort of a thoughtful and, and quiet and restrained, years after the fact, commentary on it, I see why it was never going to be an album track. It was released ultimately as a B-side, and I think that's where it should have been, but. What a fantastic and sort of just, again, sparingly observed song from a period where Springsteen really understood lyrical restraint. Let me talk here for a moment about a song that would resurface or would surface on the Greatest Hits album, but in its original version from 1982, which is Murder Incorporated. That's one that Dan had just mentioned a moment ago. It's one hell of a song. And I, I had emailed you guys before the show, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm arm's length Bruce guy entering all this, and I have no idea what the what the. Uh, not no idea, but you know, very few ideas about what Bruce fans think about a lot of this stuff. And uh, is it wrong for me to argue that Murder Incorporated really is one of his best songs? Um, nope, every, uh, Bruce fans love it too. You're in good company. Okay, good. Uh, this is a song that even as I was trying to keep Bruce at arm's length, I could not escape from. It, it's just a tremendous song. I think it was released as a single uh, during the Greatest Hits album release, but. Every little piece of Murder Incorporated works for me, from those big power chords to kick off the song over this pulsating, these pulsating organ notes. You have the, a very muscular bass line throughout the whole track, those those plinking piano notes in the in in the chorus. 
uh, Clarence and the, and the rest of the band doing backup vocals right around all of Bruce's lines in the, in the verses. A tremendous middle eight that slides directly into the final verse. Huge Clarence Clemens saxophone solo. It's a big, honking song. It's the kind of song that the E Street Band just eats for breakfast. And they do a great job with what is also a really good set of lyrics from Springsteen too. Uh, this this uh, I like this, you know, like 20 times more than anything that actually made the Born in the USA album. So you keep a little secret down deep inside your dressing door for dealing with the heat you're feeling down on the killing floor no matter where you step you feel you never out of danger so the comfort that you keep from playing a stuff knows that it's I hear that you you We have to ask ourselves a question, and that question is, what do you do to follow up the biggest album of your career, the biggest stadium tour of your career? This is, by the way, you know, you think of the progression of Bruce Springsteen live performances because Bruce is known as such an incredible live performer. You know, he, in 1973, he's playing clubs, and there are 500 people in the audience on a good night. Sometimes there are 40 people, all right? 75 now he's getting into the hip zones he's getting he's playing the roxy he's playing the bottom line you know he's gotten the buzz 1978 okay now he's playing college you know basketball arenas he's playing slightly larger venues 1980 okay well now he's closing out his tour in 1980 by playing you know the nassau coliseum and that's big there's a lot of people there by the time 1984 and 1985 come around the born of the usa tour he's playing the meadowlands for god's sake you know he's he's playing right on jimmy hoffa's corpse all right you know he is filling out football stadiums and he's doing it all over the country and all over the world for that matter he's never been bigger he will never be bigger i mean he's he's actually always still draws huge capacity crowds you know even to this day because he's springsteen he's one of those very few legacy acts sort of like the rolling stones who you're like if he's coming out then you're coming out to see him because it's springsteen you want you want to get the experience right but in 1984 and 85 before he had sort of ossified and sort of like you know this legacy act and he was still like you know the the hot artist this guy was as big as anyone could be so how do you follow up that well, you do your finally long-awaited live album. Everyone's been talking about how fantastic the Springsteen live experience is. Everyone's been talking about how it's life-changing, how you could, well, literally, you can be, you know, a, a, a paraplegic and you will throw your crutches away and walk out of the venue at the end of a Springsteen show. That's how life-changing it, that is. Uh, and so we got to put out the live album. So what does he do? Well, you know, he, he, he puts out a very modest five-record set. 
and sees it immediately go to number one on the charts. By the way, this is five albums, three CDs, debuts at number one in the charts in 1986. The Bruce Springsteen and East Street Band live 1975 to 85. Uh, that's never going to happen again. Uh, never is it going to happen again where you have five albums, a five-disc set that probably cost, I, I don't even know, $30 in 1986. That's what, what that's like $1,000 now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't keep track of inflation, but it was pretty pricey and people still plunked down the coin for it. That's how powerful a commercial proposition Springsteen was. This has sort of gone down as the definitive representation of what was Springsteen like in his classic era. And... I am intensely disappointed with it and have been ever since the day I bought it. Not even that, ever since the day my dad rented it from the library and brought it home to us. It has always bugged me because as only a true Springsteen nerd can complain, it isn't even remotely representative of what I considered his true greatness to be. However, it is iconic. It is an enormously high-selling album. There's no way that we can move on from this part of his career without discussing it. What do you guys think? I know, Scott, you hate live albums, but Dan, you and I have listened <laughs> to this thing for the last 20 years, 30 years. What do you think of this record? Well, first of all, I, I, I think I will actually say two very contradictory things about this album, which is that it is one of the greatest live albums ever released, and it is enormously disappointing. Um, I mean, I think Bruce is such a powerful live act, and so many of these songs come alive on the box set in ways that they didn't previously on the records, um, that this is, it, it is still tremendous, um, you know, and there are some great versions of this, you know, now having, having waded through a lot of individual shows, I can, I even kind of pinpoint which shows these are from, obviously the Badlands version on here is the one from Tempe, Arizona. You have uh, it's hard to be a saint in the city, which I think they've they I think it's from the the from Roxy, the Roxy Theater, Theater show in seventy eight. They, they've edited it a little if you listen to the actual original, but the that's the one that's actually the only song I think on the entire box set that really captures the incredible tempo of the East Street Band in the in the mid to late seventies, and it's the guitar work on that is unbelievable. Um, what I think they were shooting for with this album though, is two things. And, and there, there are some originals, or at least new... They actually released War as a single, mm -hmm. and, and Bruce's cover of War, and it went to almost almost hit top ten. No, no, it, you know, it hit the top ten. It, it went, it, yeah. I think it ended up at number eight, I believe. Seeds is uh, is here. I, I still wish we'd ever gotten a studio version of Seeds um, because because the the uh, vocals are a little hard to hear on the box set version. There are other live versions that are better. Jersey Girl is tremendous here. Um, because the night that's the first time you heard Bruce singing that. If you yeah. didn't you know know it was a Springsteen song, it was obviously always associated with Patti Smith before then. 
Yeah, and, and you know, 10th Avenue Freeze Out, I, I talked about on the last episode, loving the, the high-tempo version of that in the 70s. You don't get that here. But I think they were aiming for two things, which is, one, I think they, they clearly were trying to pick out the best sort of Springsteen vocal performances rather than the best E Street band performances. Um, yeah. and, and to some extent, they accomplished that with some of these where they, they really focus. They may even have fiddled with the mix, I think, a little bit to bring up Bruce over the band. Um, and the other thing is, frankly, I, I think the lack of exceptionally high tempo things is because whoever was putting this together, and I'm sure Bruce was heavily involved, and I don't know who else with him, but clearly was putting this out with an eye towards we want a box set that's going to sound like the show you, that you will hear if you come out to hear Bruce now, rather than the show you would have heard if you heard Bruce seven or ten years ago. Which ironically was not the case because what goes next is nothing like prior <laughs> Bruce shows. But yeah, I, I understand that point. I, the, the thing that bugs me about it is that so much is sacrificed to that point. Do we really need to hear like seven songs from Born in the USA, Darlington County, Working on the Highway, I'm on Fire, Cover Me? Well, there's a ton uh, of it that's from 84, 85. Almost half of it, I think, is from which the, is, the most which, recent tours. Okay, which is, again, this is this is the complaint of a guy who's actually been, you know, for a huge part of his life, a serious Springsteen connoisseur, that there's a moment on this this live album where it flips over from the small clubs or even like, you know, sort of arenas, college arenas to like mega stadiums, the echo. And in fact, I feel like it was mixed specifically in an annoying way to emphasize the echo Mm -hmm. and like, Oh, Mm -hmm. how large this venue is. Look at all these people. They're singing. There's this sort of awful version of hungry heart that I, I've never liked it. It, It's from those uh, 1980 shows where um, the end of the year uh, and he lets the whole, audience sing the first verse on their own and you just hear the echo and this and in the, i guess the idea is to sell like wow this is such a a, a a dialed in audience they know the words they're singing along with us we're all having a great time but i'm just hearing you know sort of bloat uh, what i'm hearing is i'm hearing self-indulgence and then it gets bigger and bigger you have all these songs from the meadowlands right and then from like you know giant stadium from the los angeles coliseum and then the last part of this record is just like 1984 85 stuff and and it, it just it, it almost sounds to me like it's the sound of Springsteen getting more and more distant from his audience, which is what I've loved, which is, you know, the reverse of what I always loved about his early shows from like 73 through 78. And even into the 1980 river tour era where he was like there, he was connected that smaller venues. uh, You could hear the sound of, of, of a small audience and the energy that comes from that, from from feeling like you were reaching every single person in the room, as opposed to playing to the upper decks, uh, you know, that are you know, uh, you know, two hundred yards away, you know, in a, in a mega stadium, and that you know, even Springsteen, as great a live performer as he is, you can't get to that level of connection when you're playing to those sorts of crowds no matter what the people who are there may feel that's sure that's one thing but i wasn't there i'm having to listen to the recording of it after the fact and that's always been my disappointment with this this release it was sort of you know designed to tell a story i've always even resented the fact that they called it live 1975 to 85 there's one song from 1975 <laughs> from uh, a roxy performance in 75 and it's like just him alone on the piano i think uh 
you know, Federici maybe playing like the Celestes in the background doing Thunder Road to open it. There were a ton of great live performances from 1975. Why is that the only one that you chose? I understand why there wasn't stuff from earlier in his career because that stuff was never professionally recorded. They wanted to go only with like the, the you know the studio you know the stuff that was is done on multi-track tape. But it, this was curated to tell a certain kind of story, and that certain story was one that he wanted to be told in 1986. Uh, and I wonder if he was doing this again in 2020, whether he would arrange it the same way or if that's the same sort of story that he would want to tell. As Jeff mentioned, I'm uh, well known for not being a connoisseur of live albums, but this is almost an exception because much like Jeff's dad, uh, I actually went to the library and rented this uh, album. It had to be uh, 88 or 89. I, I don't remember. But I have some familiarity with this, and uh, I'm not quite steeped as steeped in the live stuff as as both Dan and Jeff. So from me, a, a couple of, of highlights. Uh, you guys already mentioned Because the Night, uh, which which is good. I, I I like the No Surrender performance, even if it is in the Meadowlands. He, he's able to sort of quiet the crowd for the most part in, in that performance. Uh, here's one for Friendship, uh, how he starts that off. I like the energy, if you can look, um, from, from some of the 1980 performances. Um, but, but part of the story here, as Jeff mentioned, is what's missing too. You know, there's no jungle land and, and from the last episode, you know, that's not my favorite Springsteen song, but I know that's epically performed live. Uh, Kitty's back is not here and uh, much to Jeff's chagrin, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, and there's nothing as Jeff mentioned from the early, early 73, 74 days either. So, um, you know, for someone new or someone not quite as steeped in some of the live, performances from from Springsteen especially 75 to 80 or so it's fine it's good as Dan said it's it's both uh, a great live album and probably disappointing to some of the real true Bruce diehards out there uh for me it, it, it holds up pretty well so the yeah, interesting... I don't I don't like that live I, I don't like the version of No Surrender at all by the way <laughs> Yeah, I, agree. I actually agree with Dan. I, I want my full electric version. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you, know, that, you know, that slowed down version is isn't for me. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like I, I sounded too negative about this album. Bruce is a theatrical guy, and okay, this has always been his thing since you know the earliest days. He's understood the power of the well placed monologue, bringing the band down, telling a story, holding that crowd in the palm of your hand. And, you know, there's a moment on, on, on this record that comes from the Roxy stuff in 78 that is one of those things that gave me goosebumps, and it still does. I was listening to it again last night, and it gave me goosebumps yet again, and I'm 39 years old right now. It's in Growing Up when he, he brings down the band in the middle of the song, and he's in L.A., and it's like, hey, you know, I think my mom and my dad are in the crowd right now. You know, my, 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 my dad always wanted to become a lawyer. He said, yeah, you can get something from yourself, you know. You know, you can get something for yourself. And it's my mom. My mom always wanted me to be the writer. She's like, yeah, that's good. You know, you know, it's an honorable profession. You can get something for yourself. Uh, but what they didn't realize is that I want it all. And then the crowd goes crazy. And then that final line at the end, it was like, hey, mom, dad, you know, I, I'm sorry if you disappointed in me. But tonight, the only thing I can give you is rock and roll. So you guys, you, one of you guys wanted a lawyer, another one wanted an author. Well, tonight, these are both just gonna have to settle for rock and roll. <laughs> 
long vacations in the stratosphere You know it's really hard to hold your breath I swear I lost everything I ever loved to fear I was the cosmic king My feet, they finally took me to the earth Where I got me a nice little place in the stars I swore I found the key to the universe Then boom, the band comes in. And yeah, dude, I'm, I'm talking about it right now and I got goosebumps. And I'm not even listening to it. It's just, he probably did that shtick a hundred times, man. But it's just every time I hear it, it sets my hairs up on end. He was a, is still to this day, a utterly mesmerizing, riveting live performer, and you do hear a lot of it on this album. I just feel like it, it, it could have, should have been assembled differently. I also feel like it was a last hurrah for the E Street Band, because although there would be one more tour with the band formally, um, his next album is an album that is not credited to the E Street Band, although many of them play on it. It's the first of what I think would become what would become a series of Bruce Springsteen solo or quasi-solo assays and of course that's that's tunnel of love in 1987 which i guess i have to give the man credit this is him really really turning hard away from like the big stadium rockers you know easy to please you know like everybody bother heads you know dan said like you could have released a, a follow-up to born in the usa just from the outtakes of that album that would have done just as well as the original album he didn't do that Here's a here's a here's an album about dissolving relationships, about love, about you know you know, unfaithfulness, about obligations to your family that you don't necessarily want to fulfill. Uh, this is an album that the fans, the real hardcore fans, really love, uh, and I think casual listeners. They, they, they hauled it to number one because it was still Bruce Springsteen in the 80s. But nobody really has much good to say about it. I think it's one of his two best albums from this era. I love Tunnel of Love. I may be the only person on the show who's willing to go to bat for it that way. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I mean, I well, first of all, you know, the, yeah, some, I think some of the fans were not happy when this album came out. Um, I think the band was not happy when this album came out because they started to see the writing on the wall. Probably the person who was least happy when this album came out was Julianne Phillips. Because this, is, <laughs> this album is basically, um, you know, it's basically a divorce note. Uh, in, in, and and if, you're, if you've been married for like a year and your husband writes this album, your marriage is in trouble. Although, although I have to say that looking at what Bruce does next, it, it almost seems like part of the divorce that's going on is Bruce and the band, too. Um, I, I think this album is a good album. Uh, there's some wonderful songs on it. I think it's much more lyrically interesting than it is musically. I think outside of 
Tunnel of Love and Brilliant Disguise. An awful lot of these songs are musically just not all that interesting. They don't have all that much. You know, listen to a song like Walk Like a Man or Tougher Than the Rest. Those are good songs. I like the lyrics, you know, and, and I listen to them, but they musically they don't have all that much to say. One of the song, songs on here, um, All That Heaven Will Allow, I think on the list of Bruce songs that are later covered by another artist, I think the Mavericks version of that may be the best Bruce cover that I've heard, um, you know, of all. Tunnel of Love is a great song. Uh, and musically, I think it's the kind of the liveliest thing on the record. And, uh, you know, it, it really captures that wonderful ambivalence. There's so many great, great little lines in that, you know, from, from the, the very opening, you know, fat man sitting on a little stool. Uh, it takes the money from it in my hand while his eyes take a walk all over you. That man sitting on a little stool takes the money from my hand while his eyes take a walk all over you. Hands me a ticket, smiles and whispers good luck. Well, cuddle up, angel, cuddle up, my little dove. Well, ride down, baby, into this tunnel of Bruce has so many so many good lines in this, um, but I think it's it's not a it's not an album that that is going to be anywhere near the top of my list of things that I that I want to throw on and and listen to end to end. Um, the one the one outtake, by the way, off this album that is just gorgeous uh, that's on the tracks box set is is the wish the wish yes which is all of Bruce right. How many times has Bruce written songs beating his head against the wall over his dad? And the one time he writes a song about his mom, he leaves it off the album. Um, but it is such a gorgeous little, it, I mean, it, literally the song is written as a gift to his mother. It says it's written as a gift to his mother. And it yeah, really I, mean, I, is I, I feel like he just, he, he just like mailed a copy of the song to his mom. <laughs> so yeah. like, this is not coming out officially, but happy birthday, mom. It's, it's a wonderful song. He talks about like how his mom would love to dance and, you know how she'd walk down the street after work, and you know she'd be all well done and made up, and you know, and little Bruce, baby Bruce, would be walking hand in hand with her, look up, and, and he'd feel such admiration for her. And then you know, there's a line that just it does it really makes you just kind of choke up. Where at the end, where he's like, you know, so I'm taking requests here, mom. You know, what kind of song you want to hear? What's the line that he says? He's like. No, but if you want a sad song, well, well, I ain't gonna play it. And then he just goes into that wonderful little like instrumental uh, piece. It's uh, probably one of the finest tributes I've ever heard a son write to their mother, you know, in <laughs> rock music. And of course, it's on tracks. You you have to get the box set to ever hear it. Well, tonight I'm taking requests here in the kitchen. This one's for you, Ma. Let me come right out and say it. It's overdue. But baby, if you're looking for a sad song, well, I ain't gonna play. Come on.
I like Tunnel of Love quite a bit. I, I it it might show up at the end of the show. I'm still figuring that out, uh, and I'm not sure I like it quite as much as Jeff. But this is a good album, uh, somewhat unexpectedly, because uh, I, you know there, there's two songs on here people might remember from the single release. And that's Tunnel of Love and Brilliant Disguise, and as as uh, as Dan mentioned, both those songs are really tremendous singles. Tunnel of Love is fantastic. Great, great set of lyrics from Bruce. All the little corners. I, I love the way he sort of sings, you know, cuddle up, angel, cuddle up, my little dove. Um, and, that, and that last verse, too. You know, man meets woman and they fall in love, but the house is haunted, the ride gets rough. Um, it's a great vocal performance, great set of lyrics from Bruce on, on Tunnel of Love. And, and the feel of it, it feels a little like the old epic Bruce stuff from the first two albums. Just there's a couple of different parts. They're arranged very nicely. I like the way Tunnel of Love is pulled off. And Brilliant Disguise is just a tremendous song. Um, you know, Brilliant it, Disguise, again, you know, I, I rank it up there with The Promised Land in terms of, I think, the greatest lyric that, that, that Springsteen ever wrote. And, of course, on a completely different subject. This is just all about self-doubt, mm-hmm. doubting yourself, doubting your, 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 your partner, your lover. You know, I heard somebody call your name from underneath our willow. I saw something tucked in shame underneath your pillow. And then there's that line. I just, I've, I've always gone back to it. I try so hard, baby, but I just can't see what a woman with like you is, is doing <laughs> with me. Is to think that you're not worthy, right? It's to, to think like, oh, you're a wonderful person, and, and me, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm human scum. So, so why are we together? And, and what is it that you see in me? I heard somebody call your name from The other thing about Brilliant Disguise, as I have to say, like, you know, Bruce would do a lot in the 90s in particular, modernizing his sound, you know, like sort of like the new 90s tones. And then not all of it has aged very well. This is very much not like, you know, da, 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 glory days, E Street Band kind of a tone. This is a sleek, smooth late 80s early 90s production and it works beautifully for this song uh, i you wouldn't even know that the drums were being pl- you could almost assume that they were a drum machine that's how perfect they are but that's what it needs this is uh for me at least by far the best song on this album and i also think it's it's interesting and telling that he doesn't play this song very often live he'll come out like you know, four or five times you know, and on every tour he plays. I think he, I think uh, during his like Springsteen on Broadway show, he played it every night. It was like in the, you know, it was written into the show. But beyond that, like, no, this isn't like, uh, like, one, this isn't Born in the USA. This isn't, uh, you know, Born to Run or anything like that. I think it's the equal of 
either of those songs, and yet he's reluctant to play it all the time because I think it touches maybe just a little bit too closely on some really, really painful subjects. Now you play the loving one. I play the faithful man. But just don't look too close into the palm of my hand. Oh, we stood at the altar, the gypsies for And, and clearly there's a lot of that uh, doubt all over the album you know who am i and who are you and what do i really want out of a relationship and love um ain't got you the, the first track where he, he does his best kind of roy orbison vocal track very nice uh, tougher than the rest is a, is a great low-key laid-back song this lovely organ line and I like the way it closes, too, with a song called Valentine's Day. No chorus, uh, I think just three three verses, one right after the other. And, and sort of a, a, a callback, I think, in, in the final verse. Um, he says he was dreaming, the guy's dreaming, he dreams he dies, he wakes up, wakes up and he feels he's born again. He says, it wasn't the cold river bottom I felt rushing over me. It wasn't the bitterness of a dream that didn't come true. It was you. And you get back to, of course, the river. You get back to uh, his questions about, you know, what's a dream if it doesn't come true. Uh, that, that he was asking earlier lyrically in his career. Valentine's Day is a really powerful way to end Tunnel of Love. They say if you die in your dreams, you really die in your bed. But honey, last night I dreamed my eyes rolled straight back in my head. God's life. Shining on through I woke up in the darkness Scared and breathing Born anew It wasn't a cold river bottom I felt rushing over me It wasn't the bitterness of a dream That didn't come true It wasn't the wind in the gray fields I felt rushing through my arms No, no, baby Springsteen famously uh, went to Steve Van Zandt, who, who had left the band, of course, uh, and uh, he, but he was still his friend, and he uh, he played him "Ain't Got You" as a demo. It's the first song on, on Tunnel of Love, and you know the, what's what's the lyric on "Ain't Got You"? It's like it was like I, I got the fortunes of heaven and diamonds and gold. I got all the bonds, baby, that the bank could hold. I got houses across the country end to end, and everybody wants to be my friend. Uh, but the only thing is that I ain't got you. And, you know, basically he's saying like, you know, this is, you know, 
what what is a romantic dilemma for a guy who who's made it and is rich and is you know has everything he's ever wanted, but he doesn't have you know personal fulfillment in his life, and Steve Van Zant was revolted by it. <laughs> he was actually angry at Springsteen. He's like he said literally like this is bullshit. Uh, he said, "People do not want to hear you talking about how hard it is to be rich, but not have you know, uh, you know, all the love that you might want in your life. They want to hear you talking about them, not you, because nobody is going to be who you are, but you can be who they are." Uh, it was an interesting, uh, you know, point. I actually thought it was maybe a little bit overdone as an objection because, like, it's it's kind of a joke song. When he's talking about like I got a pound of caviar sitting home on ice, I, you know, right. fancy foreign cars, hundred pretty women, you know, folks want to kiss me who I ain't even seen before. It's a funny song, but I did appreciate the fact that that Steve Van Zant was willing to basically just punch him in the face and say like, listen, <laughs> nobody wants to hear rock stars lamenting about how hard it is to be rich. I got a pound of caviar sitting. What I love about this album is particular. There, there, there are weak spots. I, I think that tougher than the rest, which is a song that he actually plays a ton live. I've never liked. Um, Cautious man, walk like a man. Those two, I think, maybe are weaker. Spare parts, I do like because it's just so harsh. Yeah, it's so painful. It was, it was you know, you know, uh, you know, Bobby said he'd pull out, but Bobby stayed in. So Jenny had a baby. It wasn't any sin, and it, and it gets darker from there. You know, it's just you know, you know, at the end of it, you know, she went, she ends up like throwing away or, or pawning off her wedding ring and her gown instead of trying to like lament the fact that. You know, Bobby has left her and has abandoned her and her son, and she's had to move back in with her mom. But it's the second half of this album. It begins with Tunnel of Love that I just think is is, is magnificent. It, it's a magnificent exploration of, like, romantic doubt and, you know, you know these, these kinds of problems that Springsteen, I think, was almost uniquely equipped, uniquely equipped to discuss a song like One Step Up. Uh, you know, you know, we're not learning. It's the same story. We're the same story, and that's a fact. It's one step up and two steps back. Uh, I do understand uh, why Dan says this sounds like a divorce filing by uh, record album, uh, and I, I, I guess I feel bad for Julianne Phillips. You know, the, the only way I knew Julianne Phillips prior to the Bruce Springsteen story is, that, you know, Thirty Eight Special, Dan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, remember you know that song like if you could. What is it? It's what a, if I if was been the, the one, one to say yeah. goodbye, goodbye? It's Julianne Phillips playing the jealous girlfriend in that song, <laughs> and I think that's actually how she came to Bruce Springsteen's attention in 1983 or 84. Then they got married, and then it all fell apart. And uh, then Bruce actually found real love with uh, Patty Scalfa, uh, who was, I believe, at first a member of her band. Uh, you know, you should probably never let a redheaded woman into your band. She's going to steal your, your lover away. Um, 
and uh, he got married to her, and uh, this leads to, I think, what most people believe is the most unfortunate part of Bruce Springsteen's career. What do we do about the whole human touch lucky town conundrum? These albums, uh, and, and it's interesting because when you get past Born in the USA, right? I think I think Born in the USA is the end of Bruce's real creative, um, creative peak in terms of you know from this point on we no longer see Bruce putting out albums and leaving entire albums worth of quality <laughs> material on the side with. Um, I mean, I think more importantly, he's no longer driving the conversation the way he was. Like, remember, you know, like, you know, live 1975, 85, debuted at number one despite being five albums long. Uh, That is not the case for either of these records. Yeah. I mean, the key thing, obviously, musically is get rid of the band, right? Roy Roy Bitten appears uh, on most of the tracks on these two albums. um, and, And the rest of the band is almost entirely absent. I think we're entirely absent, Um, you know, and there's the the, I think you certainly could make a point and make an argument that these two albums should have been just one album. I I think they're kind of an album and a half, maybe, Um, you know, of the two uh, of the two albums that come out. Lucky Town is the better of the two albums. Uh, It's got better stuff on it. Uh, It has a few weak songs. Um, Human Touch. I actually I mean, look, I liked both of these albums when they came out. Obviously, this is, again, a, going back to the fact that this is the first time I was really like I was in college. I was an adult uh, and, and getting new Bruce at that stage in your life was sort of an exciting thing. Um, I also went to see Bruce on the tour for this uh, December 14th, 1992 uh, at the Boston Garden. And, you know, I, I got to say, by the way, folks, if you're listening to the show and you have never seen Bruce, even today, and, and, and you know, obviously he's, he, different eras have been better than others, and, and he is getting on uh, in years, and Clarence has gone. But, you know, he still puts on a great show. If you can see Bruce with the band, go see Bruce with the band. There is nothing like the magical experience of seeing Bruce for the first time. And I, and I remember it was, you know, it was one of these things where, like, a bunch of buddies of mine in college, we had tickets, and a friend agreed to lend us her car if we would dig it out of a foot of ice and snow, which... Uh, at that age, is sounds like a pretty good deal, right? To get to, to, to go see Bruce, um, and and the garden was packed to the rafters. This is not the best era to see Bruce live, right? I mean, we had you know he plays Soul Driver on the uh, the live set of that night. If you want to get a sense of the set, you know set list and the I actually kind of like that song. The E Street Band is not there, but 
it was such a compelling experience. Bruce did like a 20 minute version of light of day that just had the crowd eating out of the palm of his hand as the, the centerpiece of that. He brings out Peter Wolf at the end. They do in the midnight hour and Santa Claus is coming to town. It, it, it was a magical experience. And I think almost anybody who has seen Bruce has that kind of experience for their first Bruce show, no matter when it is in, in their life or in his life that they have seen him. I've seen him in full concert now four times and, and I've seen him put on better set lists and better performances by the band, but there's nothing to match that first time. <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of these albums, uh, the specifics of the albums, it, yeah, I mean, Human Touch, the the opening track is a good song. So you've been broken and you've been hurt. Show me somebody who ain't. Yeah, I know I ain't nobody's bargain, but here a little touch up and a little pain. You might need something to hold on to when all Really, uh, almost all of the first half of this album is kind of is kind of a waste. There's songs, uh, Soul Driver, Cross My Heart, But Every Wish, uh, probably could have done without. Uh, Gloria's Eyes is okay. 57 channels. You know, Bruce went through a period in his career here where he seemed to think that there was just nothing more important in the world than putting out ever more different versions of 57 channels and nothing <laughs> on and part man, part monkey. Um, okay, and, listen, listen, I'm going to tell you, I actually like 57 channels. I don't dislike it, but but come on, man. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I get you. You know the number one problem with Human Touches. I'll tell you right now, sixty flipping minutes. Mm. Uh, yeah. uh, common common theme with me on this show is that I want shorter albums from all of my favorite artists. I love it when the Beach Boys would put out a twenty-seven minute album. Oh, how refreshing! You know, thirty-five minutes. Bob Dylan, Nashville Skyline, twenty-six minutes. You have one CD. Not only that, but it's a double CD thing. I mean, did, did, did Bruce look at like Guns N' Roses doing Use Your Illusions 1 and 2 and that, think, you know, hey, I can top that? That apparently because, was an inspiration. He said, Guns N' Roses did it. Let's just put out two. But that was yeah. a failure. And this is also <laughs> a failure. You could cut, I think there, there's music on here that if I listen to it and I don't think to myself, well, what is it I expect from... Bruce Springsteen, you know, I don't, I don't think, I consciously tell myself, this is not darkness on the edge of town. I actually like a lot of the music on this record. There's too much of it, and it is indeed far too sedate. It, it, there's something about it that it, it almost seems sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's like there, there's there's no ambition. You know, I, I, I was talking with Dan about this in our show notes. He says, whatever you do, don't stick up for Pony Boy. Uh, I kind of like Pony Boy. I'm sorry. Don't you know? Don't 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 really hold that against me. Oof. But I actually I actually think the first half of this album is pretty good. I like Man's Job quite a bit. You know, maybe I'm a sexist. I don't know. I think it's a parody <laughs> of that. Um, but well, it, it it pairs with it pairs with Real Man though, right? I mean, Bruce right. is making a statement there. He's he's basically 
he's sticking up in man's job for the kind of vision of manhood as you know maturity and hey baby you need a man to do this job for you and then in real man he's kind of he's kind of you know looking down his nose at machismo which which he you know is sort of a big fashionable thing to do at this at this point of course there's the obligatory dig at rambo and whatnot right. uh, real man is is fun musically it, it, it is And Roll of the Dice, by the way, probably best understood as a, a Roy Bitten solo track with Bruce on it. But right. it's, it's a wonderful piano tune. It reminds me of Billy Joel's uh, I Go to Extremes. It's the same kind of just the piano just starts it and just keeps on going. <laughs> I guess I've never understood why people are so like convicted about the fact that Lucky Town is better than Human Touch. I think that they're both kind of on an equivalent level. I guess that Better Days is like a better song mm-hmm. than anything on this record. I'll grant that. Um, uh, but I, I think the one that uh, that I also would, would like to single out because otherwise I don't have very strong feelings about it is I've always really liked Local Hero. I don't know if you guys remember the old film local hero from the early 80s uh it's kind of like one of these sort of semi-obscure beloved cult films from uh the united kingdom but uh yeah uh, i like local hero this is his version of it where he goes into a shop and he sees a picture of himself on the wall he walks in and he asks the uh the girl behind the counter hey can i get that photo it's like no no, no you can't get that photo that's that that, that guy's a local hero and she doesn't even recognize that that he's the guy who's asking for it because it's like bruce springsteen from 1973 in the photo and you know he's bruce springsteen in 1992 And, you know, it's kind of a right commentary on that. I think it works really well. I was driving through my hometown. I was just kind of killing time. When I seen a face staring out of a black bed taken from the window of fire and dime. I couldn't quite recall a name, but the photos looked familiar to me. So I And, and of course, you know, you had you had the Tunnel of Love era, the divorce with the wife, the divorce with the band, and Local Hero is kind of the divorce from New Jersey, who he does come back to, but but um, he moves to California for a little while. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, my favorite song, though, of all on both on either of these records is Living Proof, um, and it's it's it it is, and there's a certain irony here, of course, because Bruce has spent so much time uh, writing about fatherhood from the perspective of a son and now he's writing it from from sort of the perspective of a new father uh and it is just it's such a great song and it, it it's one of those you know i had 
I had kids pretty young and, and one of those songs I really sat and listened to a lot in that period, but I had sat and listened to it before that. And, you know, he, he gives sort of an echo lyrically there too, of where he would go later on with land of hope and dreams. He's got this whole thing about, you know, tonight let's lie beneath the eaves, just a close, close band of happy thieves. When that train comes, we'll get on board steal what we can from the treasures of the Lord. It's been a long, long drought, baby. Tonight, the rain's pouring down on our roof. Looking for a little bit of God's mercy, I found living proof. And that's, you know, it, 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 in all of the kind of Bruce self-pity, uh, and there is a little too much self-pity on these two albums, Yeah, um, that comes through as such a contrast that, that here's the thing I've finally been looking for is being a dad. Well, I put my heart What was it Chris Gow said about these two albums? He reviewed them combined with one sentence. He said, "Windbag and love." <laughs> yeah, and, and the band, the band here, the band choices are interesting because he's got uh, he has Sam Moore doing backing vocals on a couple on of Human days. Touch. And by yeah. the way, that's one of the secret weapons of that album is that you know Sam Moore, Sam and Dave, people yeah. who aren't familiar with great '60s soul classics, you cannot go wrong with Sam Moore's voice. That guy. Uh, you know, and I like I like Miami Steve, okay? You know, on backing vocals for Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. But but Steve has nothing on Sam Moore. <laughs> Sam Moore is one of the soul giants. Yeah, and, and uh, the, he uh, really adds a lot to that. Yeah, the, the bass player actually on Human Touch is Randy Jackson, who probably yeah. people know from American Idol. Or That's Journey. <laughs> He's back in Journey, too. You know, I mean, and Scott, I assume that your opinion on these two albums is that, that that's a no from you, dog, right? Uh, that's a no from me, dog. Yes, uh, Human Touch, especially. Here's what I think. It, uh, I think Jeff had mentioned there's kind of a lack of musical ambition in places on on Human Touch. Um, I wrote this is what uh, this is what Eddie and the Cruisers version of a Bruce Springsteen album would sound like. It kind of sounds like Oof. Bruce. And it's not quite there, but no, that, that's working on a dream. My friend, <laughs> but we'll get to that. But it's going through the motions. Um, Jeff mentioned the overall length of the album, but the overall length of some of these songs. I mean, Human Touch. I agree with Dan. is a pretty good song. Human Touch is more than six and a half minutes long, and it's not the old length of these very carefully constructed parts and sort of movements. It's just sort of mindless noodling or, or, or you know, kind of uh, vocal exercises that yeah, extend it's, it's the length of It's not Rosalita come out tonight. Right. Yeah. There's no real point to the length. Um, I think Lucky Town is the better of the two because the, the two best songs on either of these albums are on Lucky Town, Better Days, and I really like If I Should Fall Behind from Lucky Town as well. And some of the, well, that's a softer song. And I think some of the softer moments on Lucky Town actually do work well. I think Book of Dreams, uh, Book of Dream is, is good. Uh, My Beautiful Reward is kind of a country-flavored track on, on Lucky Town. Both those work pretty well. Um, so I, I think Lucky Town is pretty clearly the superior of, the, of these two. 
but neither of them are going to be competing for a, a, a spot, spoiler, a spot on my top two albums come the end of the show. So before we get to the biggest swindle of Bruce, Bings, Bruce Springsteen's career, does anybody have any thoughts on Streets of Philadelphia? Which I will just say this, that you know, it's a one-off track. He, of course, wrote it for the film Philadelphia, you know, the Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington film. It's a great film, by the way. You should go back and watch it. Um, it, it seems almost hopelessly quaint these days where like, you know, now – like the idea of like oh, people have AIDS, that's so scandalous that nobody cares anymore. Uh, 1994, that was a big deal. And, and Springsteen wrote the not the title track. The title track was actually written by Neil Young of all people, uh, but a song that was you know similarly themed, Streets of Philadelphia, which is sort of treated as like his reemergence or his comeback. Uh, it was sort of – I always felt it was an artificial narrative because I don't really think he really truly reemerged until maybe you know, 2001 with uh, an album – 2002 with an album that I know Dan's going to want to talk about. Um, but Streets of Philadelphia is a fantastic song, and it does show Bruce in a very different mode. It's kind of got a very kind of electronic 90s uh, beat-heavy approach that is, is far removed from – not only the E Street Band, but even the Human Touch and Lucky Town sound as he would ever get. But I think it's a really successful song, and I, and I, it's 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 certainly not an upbeat crowd pleaser. I don't know if he ever plays it live. I don't know if he can play it live with the band that he has. But I've always loved. It. Ain't no angel gonna greet me. It's just you and I, my friend. And my clothes don't fit me no more I want a thousand miles just to slip this scheme The night is falling, I'm blind awake I can feel myself fading away So receive me, brother, with your faithless kiss Or will we? Leave each other alone like this on the streets of Philadelphia. Yeah, it's uh, it is the closest he gets to doing um, any kind of uh, hip hop, and and thank God that Bruce supposedly did do a, a hip hop. <laughs> uh album of some sort but but the legend the legend the the legendary lost bruce springsteen hip-hop album and i have said that i know there is a god and i know that he is merciful and he loves us and so because those things are true we will never ever hear this record yeah there's and there's one or two songs on on his most recent couple of albums that have just a little bit of hip-hop flavorings to them but but I think that's quite enough hip hop from Bruce. I think he did Streets of Philadelphia real well. Two other things I just want to, uh, well, three other things I guess from this period I'll just note quickly. Um, one is his uh, live on MPV set, which I've, I've kind of mentioned the highlights of it, Atlantic City and Light of Day. He does a lot of the songs from from the Human Touch Lucky Town era. I think it's a good it's a good record. Um, one is the outtakes from Human Touch Lucky Town. Um, I think the best of those is Trouble River. Uh, there's a couple others. Yeah, that, train. that song is better than any of the songs on either album. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to disagree with that. And I, I he had, it was not on the tracks box set. 
Um, so I heard him do it live in 99, I think before I got 18 tracks, which is where Trouble River is. And I was like, wow, like this is this is so good. And it, it's of, of all of Bruce's kind of heavy grinding guitar type songs. Um, I think it's it's the best of those. Snakes crawling in the high house. too is there's, there's a great collaboration bruce does in this period with Southside johnny it's written by little steven the three of them do a song called the it's been a long time and they shot the video in the stone pony and we could do a lot on bruce's collaborations a lot of them are kind of forgettable but but that's that's a great one and it's great kind of snapshot in time of a bunch of guys you know hitting their early 40s and reminiscing about their early 20s in a way that works okay so i'd like to spend maybe two minutes talking about the next album because i'm still angry about it I'm angry about it because in 1995, I was told that the great Bruce Springsteen comeback album had finally been released. His best album in a decade, they said to me. His best album since Nebraska, they said to me. Oh, it's just like Nebraska. It's dark. It's gritty. It's it's mostly acoustic. You're gonna love it. You know. Uh, you know. He's really got his literate lyrics back, and and boy, it, it's gonna devastate you. The name of this album was The Ghost of Tom Jode, and it is, in my opinion, almost entirely a steaming pile of awful. It is just the the biggest ripoff I've ever felt with Bruce, the lowest point that I've ever had with him as a fan throughout the years, where uh, I was told that this was going to be the great thing, the great comeback, and it's just him sort of like bleeding on tunelessly for like, you know, 55 minutes uh, about social realist lyrics and, you know, Sinaloa cowboys and you know, Balboa Park and ugh, there are a couple of good songs on here that, uh, I think would develop in time. I, I, the title track is okay. It'd probably be better when Tom Morello got a hold of it. Straight Time I've always liked. And of course, Youngstown is a song that he played to death live, but on this album, uh, boy, you, you cannot hear the potential that would later be developed out of it. Uh, uh, this one, I've got very little to say about that's good. And I'm sorry if you guys listen and you happen to be big fans of this album. You're wrong. You were hornswoggled. It, it's terrible. It, it, it's to my mind his nadir. I, I think I probably like Tom Joad less than than Jeff. Um, <laughs> That's I, I, saying it, something. Wow. Yeah, no, I mean the the title track is good, and I think the title track actually works as well as it does. Uh, you know, I, I like the the electric versions that Bruce does later with Tom Morello, um, but uh, I think the I actually think the acoustic version here works quite as well. Ticket to the promised land You got a hole in your belly And a gun in your hand Sleeping on a pillow A solid rock Breathing in the city Echoing down The 
And there's one or two others that are tolerable on here, but uh, the only other song worth really worth saving is Youngstown. Youngstown, Bruce turns into a a just burn it down rocker, and you'll hear that on Live in New York City. Uh, and, and it's tremendous, tremendous song. But it's it's really only a rough draft here, and and you can easily put this song, this album, on and forget it's even played. <laughs> I think what pisses me off the most about The Ghost of Tom Joad, at least when I was reading the reviews and the way it was sold to me, is that people kept on comparing it to Nebraska. But but as I said about Nebraska back at the beginning of the show, Nebraska is not monochromatic. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a home demo album, but there are several different styles of songs. There are up-tempo songs. There are down-tempo songs. There are weird paranoiac songs. It's got several different moods. This thing, as you said just now, Dan, it, it, you put it on, you can forget that it's playing. It is just endlessly, numbingly repetitive. And, you know, any one of these individual tracks, you drop them into a different project, and, you know, okay, maybe that's a nice change of pace. But to have all of them, all 12 of them strung together, ugh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've, got, I've got unresolved issues with this record. It's a rough listen, as both of you have identified. You also have identified the only tracks that I would consider worth even trying to seek out. Title track and Youngstown. So that's probably all we have to say about Ghost Town Joe. Tom Jode. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the next thing just to note is that this is when Bruce finally opens up the vaults, 1998, and he releases tracks, and then 18 tracks afterwards. It's sort of like the one-disc digestible version of it. And, uh... uh Folks, there's a reason we keep on referring to this this box set, you know, on our in our travails here as we go through the Bruce Springsteen discography, because it's really honestly just as essential as any of his records. And it puts into context so many of the choices that were made on these records. We don't really need to discuss it in any detail because all of the important cuts we've already covered, but get it. It's good. It's really good. It is one of my favorite box sets, and I think you know Bruce probably arrogantly, and I think in this point I have to give him his due, correctly proud of the fact that it stands up to the Bootleg series, volumes one through three by Bob Dylan, which is you know the other big like at that point like purely unreleased outtakes boxed set out there. Uh, and you know Bruce was saying you know in his own way, not explicitly, but you know, he implies it with this release four CDs, not three. That like, listen, my unreleased work stacks up with the best of any of them, and in this case, it mostly does. Even that fourth disc, which is starts with the Human Touch Lucky Town era, so you might just sit to yourself and say, "Oh God, do I really want to listen to this?" I didn't have time for it when I was a kid. I came back to it recently, and I found out like, yeah, no, even on this record, there are a lot of good songs on it. This is something that anybody who's even mildly interested in Springsteen should own. But that's really not the important story. The important story is, did you think it was never going to happen? Did you really think it wasn't going to happen? Of course it was going to happen. Bruce Springsteen gets the East Street Band back together. 
And that, of course, brings us to the big reunion tour. This is when I saw Bruce live for the first time, and last time up until this point. Uh, and I have to admit, it was a great show. I saw it at the MCI Center in Washington, D.C. It kicked ass. You know, they opened with My Love Won't Let You Down, and you know, they played that, that bad acoustic version of Born in the USA. There was an awesome, wonderful version of like Light of Day. Uh, it was a fantastic concert, and this is, this is what everyone had been waiting for. Everybody had been dying to hear. Uh, and and of course, it, it sort of has been given you know, permanent immortalization uh, in um, the Live at New York City album, which came out a couple years later. This is the, the E Street Band back together playing, I believe, at Madison Square Garden. And it's a live album, and it's not the same kind of level of iconic live album as the Live 1975-85 record is. But the reason I do want to mention it is for this reason alone, is that I can... I consider it to contain one of Springsteen's greatest songs of all time, certainly in his top five from this part of his career. And that's American Skin, 41 Shots. Um, this is a song that was very explicitly topical. It was written about the shooting of Amadou Diallo, uh, the, the, I believe, the Haitian immigrant in New York City who the cops gunned down in a stairwell because they thought he was reaching for a gun. And, of course, he was unarmed, and they, they, they pumped 41 shots into his poor body. This is a horrible crime back in, I believe, 2000, 1999. Uh, and that's a hot subject. Imagine writing a song about that in 2020, right? What, what kind of flame would come off of it? Springsteen writes beautiful melody and I think a haunting lyric talking not only about, you know, what it must have felt like to, to have to suffer from this fate just for living in your American skin, which is the, the, the chorus or the pre-chorus. Uh, but also like even, even the cops who realized that they'd made a horrible mistake. They're praying over the body in the stairwell, the vestibule. And they're like, Oh, Oh my God, what have we done? What have we done? And uh, it takes such a delicate touch and such a smart hand to write down a take on this sort of very divisive and very explosive incident that has aged so well. So 20 years on, you listen to 41 Shots, and specifically, you listen to that performance from Madison Square Garden, and I'm still floored every time I hear it. 41 Shots And we'll take that ride Cross this bloody river To the other side Forty-one shots Cut through the night You're kneeling over his body In the vestibule Praying for his life Well, is it a gun? Is it a knife? Is it a wallet? This is your life it ain't no secret. It ain't no secret. It ain't no secret. No secret, my friend. You get killed just for living in your American skin. Yeah, there's there's a couple of things about this. First of all, one side note here about tracks the way Bruce treats tracks. And he does this, he's still doing this even today when he goes to archive releases. 
Bruce puts out an archive release and he treats it like he like he's promoting a new record, right? So he'll 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 go out and go out and hit the show circuit and put in concert put into his concert set all his archival material. Um, so and, and you hear a lot of that on tracks. You know, My love will not let you down is really one of the the live centerpieces of this record. Mm-hmm. American Skin, I have to agree with Jeff. It's tremendous writing. I mean that yeah that that chorus. Is it a gun? Is it a knife? Is it a wallet? This is your life. You know, and it's and it's it's so hard to write. You know, other people occasionally can do great topical music. Um, you think of a song like Ohio, right? But so often, so often people write this ham-handed stuff. Uh, you know, and, and and it just doesn't hold up well. Uh, I, I believe you pointed out that the same guy who wrote Ohio also ended up writing Let's Roll. <laughs> yeah, Let's Roll, and he wrote Southern Man too, obviously, which has kicks up its own problems, right? Neil, Neil Young is great. I love Neil Young, but he's you know the preachiness he can get overwhelming with, and 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 Bruce really, you know, and particularly because Bruce has written so many songs about like cops, and uh, and boy, will we get to that with the next album? But um, you know. Uh, Bruce has the the I mean the cops were protesting they were like turning their backs to him and stuff and at, at Madison Square Garden and and but this song is fair you know it's tough it's tough to listen to in some ways but it is fair it is fair to the cops and it is fair to the situation um you know and and to the victim and everything and and uh it, it's a wonderful piece of music and the other great uh, original song on this album which is one of my all-time favorite Bruce songs, and it, it really brings full circle kind of the the biblical revivalism. You know, we talked a little bit about it on the last show about it. Bruce kind of writing with this sort of Old Testament, um, yeah, all of these biblical references that he religious references he brings into his music. But he starts, you know, in the '70s, he's writing much more kind of the dark and judgmental stuff. And with Land of Hope and Dreams, which runs almost 10 minutes on this album. Uh, on live in New York City and and has the big sax solo and everything. Um, it, it, it it it's it's very much a a you know this train carries saints and sinners. This train carries losers and winners. He's he's getting into this whole uh, salvation narrative, and it's just such an enormously it's enormously powerful track and a great piece of music. of course then the rest of this album he also he digs up some he, he puts on some old things like a don't look back is on here lost in the flood and so there's who, a does, who doesn't want a live version of ramrod <laughs> yeah you get a live version of ramrod i like ramrod but um but but yeah no, but land of hope and dreams i think is and, and american skin the two originals on this album are absolutely worth worth the price of admission uh and you combine that with the the live version of youngstown and and some of the other uh, the other live versions, and there's there's a lot to love on this record. 
listening to uh, American Skin, as Jeff described, there's a, portion, a part right at the uh, beginning when, when they're beginning the, the song, and they're repeating 41 shots, and the crowd is clapping along, and Bruce has to sort of, he doesn't stop, but he's, he's got to say, we're going to need some quiet. And of course, the crowd, listening to Bruce, uh, almost immediately dumps out and allows the band to play. That's a powerful moment, too. Uh, I, I like this live in New, New York City album quite a bit. The uh, the last song is one I had just mentioned from Lucky Town, which is If I Should Fall Behind. That's the way the album closes. And I don't know everyone well enough to say how many members of the band step up to the microphone, but you have multiple members of the E Street band. I think, I think I think they'd actually get other members like from other bands to come in because it feels like there's 20 different people <laughs> coming in to sing all that. Uh, they, they each, you know, they, they all take a little bit of a, a, a lead vocal, a little part of If I Should Fall Behind. It's, uh, it's a neat way to close the live album. So the question is, how do we handle the uh, next 20 years of Bruce Springsteen's career in 20 minutes? Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It doesn't have to be quite that short, but... Uh, of course, the big thing that happens between the Live in New York City album uh, and what comes next is 9-11. And it's almost become sort of modern legends. You know, Bruce is driving. After 9-11, he's, he's driving around, I guess, New Jersey or something like that. I don't know. And uh, some guy come, pulls up to him at a stoplight, rolls down the window, and he says, Yo, Bruce! And he's like, What? And he's like, We need you now! which is almost a little bit too heroic. <laughs> it's a little bit too self-mythologizing, but you know, it is the kind of thing that I can imagine somebody saying to him. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to take him at his word. And so you see, he finally gets off of his butt. You know, it's been, you know, the last album he released was in 1995, right? And so seven years later, he, he gets his ass into gear after 9-11 and he puts together The Rising. And, of course, The Rising ends with a song that he had already been playing. He, he played it most famously at the, the concert for heroes, the 9-11 concert for heroes. We've talked about this before. We, we talked about it, I think, when Pearl Jam with Neil Young played Long Road, which I think is my, one of my favorite performances of Pearl Jams. Um, but Springsteen opened that telethon by just playing My City of Ruins, which he'd actually not written about New York City. He wrote about Asbury Park and how... You know, like you know, deindustrialization and the end of the, you know, the end of the boardwalk scene had kind of really killed the economy there. But it, it was very easily applied to the situation here as well. Uh, he put that at the end of this album, The Rising. A lot of people consider it to be like his true big massive comeback. Bruce is back. He's back. He's as good as he ever was. And I want to think this. I wanted to believe this. But I will start my discussion of the rising by simply saying that I do not need 72 minutes on a single disc, on a single album of Bruce. The entire middle section of this record should have been shuffled off into B-sides. You give me a 50-minute album that's a modest ask that's still longer than most records in the vinyl era would be and i think this would be one of his great albums and certainly his greatest later period album uh but you give me 73 minutes 72 minutes and it's too much it's too big an ask there are too many songs on this that should have been left off i think maybe he you know he was feeling like ah oh, you know i i've sat on the sidelines for too long and so he released more than he should have but there is just a 
ton of fantastic music on the rising. And I know Dan in particular, this, this album means a lot to you. So I want to let you go first. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I worked in the world trade center. I was there, uh, you know, I, I worked there for five years. I was, I was there on the, on the street corner, uh, on, uh, uh, you know, Chambers Street, uh, when the second plane hit the second tower, um, you know, and, and obviously it's, it's, it's almost, I mean, it's, it's difficult and cliche to summarize quickly what the atmosphere in the New York area was like immediately after that. It's almost hard now for people to get their heads around it, even in a, a time that is bizarre in its own way. And that will be hard to describe 20 years from now. Um, but, uh, you know, on top of that, then, and, and you know, I, I mean, all of us had the, the just the, the, the emotional impact that that was tremendous. And then on top of that, you know, my mom uh, came down with a basically was diagnosed with a, a brain tumor in like May of 2002 and, and died in early August. This album comes out in July of 02. Right. So I've, I've just been through 9-11 and my mom is is dying of cancer in the in the summer of 2002. And so. There's never at any point been a time when I felt more like this is my favorite artist writing exactly the album I need at exactly the moment I need it speaking directly to me. Um, and, and so the, it, this album does have a very, very special place in my heart. And I don't disagree with Jeff that, that there's there's a few extra songs on this maybe that um, that are more than than is needed. I mean, Bruce does. He does some interesting things on this album. And, and, you know, the, the other bit of the background to it, uh, I mean, Jeff mentioned kind of the legend of, of Bruce feeling like literally called to write this album. Uh, people, people and, you know, calling him in the street. The other thing is the New York Times did a series of obituaries of like every single person. It was maybe the greatest thing the Times has done in my lifetime. Every single person who died on 9-11. And every time they mentioned that somebody was a Bruce fan, Bruce would, I assume, probably call up the Times and get their at, get their contact information and call up the families and talk to them. Uh, and I think that sense of almost kind of reportage on Bruce's part deepens the sensibilities of this album. Um, and and he takes, you know, he doesn't, unlike Neil Young, he doesn't he doesn't sort of go to the place of let's talk about who's you know whose ass we're going to kick around the world uh, after this. Um, but he does look at this from almost every other kind of perspective, right? He writes Empty Sky about the uh, about that just missing, you know, the missing towers. I woke up this to an empty sky. Empty sky, empty sky. I woke up this to an empty writes nothing man about kind of the which i think actually nothing man was one he had written before but he repurposes it here for that that you know kind of the the ptsd of somebody who's been through this and is emotionally numb um you know he writes you're missing which is the you know the spouse missing somebody uh my city of ruins obviously 
you know, is, is the overall mourning for the city. Um, and he's got, uh, you know, he's got some songs here that Worlds Apart has a kind of world flavor. In Paradise, he attempts, I don't think with a great success, to write from the perspective of a suicide bomber, or at least what seems like it might be that. Um, he's got Mary's Place, which seems a little out of place, but at the same time, you know, he's trying to evoke the sound, I think, maybe musically of his, his early E Street band days, which he doesn't quite do, but it's a fun song. And it, I think it's one of the finest songs on this album. I love yeah. that song. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I like the song a lot. I'm just saying, it. you know, you, you can't go home again entirely. It does it, it isn't actually like a kiddie fact type sound, but it, it, ha- it, it evokes enough of that that it, it reminds you of that enduring Bruce um theme of you know we got to go out and party and have fun and, and make the best of our lives even in the middle of this even the that, middle that, of the that's what that that's and, what uh, i respect about this album so much is that it isn't just dirges and tributes and the kind of stuff that you know seems like weighty and important at the time but then you go listen to it 20 years later and you're just like ah listen i don't have enough time for this this depressive stuff there's stuff, stuff like Mary's Place, you know, or Waiting on a Sunny Day, you know, that that are like actually like upbeat and like you know very friendly and like the, they they remind you that there's more to life than just grief. Familiar faces around me, fills the air. Your love and grace surrounds me. Everybody's here. out on the front up loud. I dream of you in my arms and I lose myself in the crowd. Let it rain, 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 let it rain. Meet me at Mary's place. We're gonna have a party. Meet me at Mary's place. We're gonna Big ones. The two really big ones on this record, though, are are, are the two about the firemen directly, um, and that's Into the Fire and the Rising. Yeah, Into the Fire is is from the outside, right? It's and it's Bruce. I think deliberately evokes that same kind of quartet that he has in Badlands, and he says, you know, may your strength give us strength, may mm-hmm. your faith give us faith, may your hope give us hope, may your love give us love, and he he's evoking that it's that same musical lyrical structure. Um, and then the rising is just, is just tremendously powerful song, um, because it, it's really, it's written from the perspective of a fireman who goes into the towers and doesn't come out. And he's got all this about, you know, on my shoulder, a half mile of line and like going into the darkness and you can't see. And then just halfway through the song, it, it switches into, you know, he's in this kind of dream world of it's obviously the towers have just gone down, right? He's dead. And he's he's having this this you know vision of, of Mary. Of course, it's always Mary, right? <laughs> you know, but, but the, the you know the vision of, of his wife and, and and come on up for the rising. And all of a sudden, the rising isn't climbing the towers anymore. The rising is now almost you know it's really ascending into heaven, kind of a thing. It's 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 just a wonderfully structured song, and it's 
you know, the music keeps up with it. I see Mary in the garden, in the garden of a thousand sides. There's holy pictures of our children dancing in the sky, filled with light. May I feel your arms around me. May I feel your blood mixed with mine. The dream of life comes to me. Like a catfish dancing on the end of my line. The sky of blackness and sorrow. Dream of love. The sky of love. The sky of tears. The dream of love. The sky of glory and sadness. Sky of mercy, sky of fear, sky of memory and shadow. Your burning wind fills my heart tonight. Sky of longing emptiness, sky of fullness, sky of blessed light. This is not quite the album I expected it to be based on a lot of the, the discussion around it at the time and, and since then. And I wanted to like it a bit more than I probably do. I, I am completely in agreement with Jeff, which, of course, I hate to do so often, but <laughs> you can, you know, I, I wrote it down in my notes, you could cut the whole middle section, Worlds Apart, Let's Be Friends, Further On, and The Fuse. You'd have an 11-track album, which is much leaner and focused. I, I, I think that would have been a, I mean, I'm not Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I, I would prefer to have this a shorter, leaner, more focused album, I think. There's so much on this, right? It's his first album in seven years, first rock album in 10 years, first with the E Street Band for an awfully long time. I imagine that's why it, it gets a little overstuffed at its final version. Um, the, the, there's some odd uh, pro, uh, odd production choice. Brendan O'Brien produces, he, he's, he's a pro, total pro. Love Brendan O'Brien. He's um, Pearl Jam's man. Yeah. Yes. I mean, all all those great albums in the 90s largely are produced by Brendan O'Brien. There, there are some modern sort of production loops that are used in places on the rising. There's a lot of stuff going on in a lot of these songs. The drum sound, I actually don't love because it, it doesn't sound like Max. It sounds like generic 90s drum sound, which, again, it's, it's Brendan O'Brien. So I, I have not those concerns, but those sort of observations. The songs themselves, uh, Dan described the rising phenomenally, and, and that gets a lot of the attention. But, you know, Lonesome Day, which is the very first song in this album, I, I think evokes uh, a very similar sort of feeling. I, I sat down to listen to the rising and again for the first time and started it up and, of course, tried to put myself in the place of of 2002 you know after the after the 911 attacks and the aftermath and you know, and this, this album comes out and lonesome days playing and um, I, I get goosebumps immediately because of how powerful lonesome day is when they hit those portions of the song it's all right it's all right it's all right um you know gonna find my way through this lonesome day that's a really powerful song and, a, and, a, and an amazing way to start out an album. This storm will blow through by and by House on fire, vipers in the grass A little vengeance Two shall pass This two shall pass Dark and don't pray Right now, all I got is this lonesome day 
Dan mentioned, you know, there are direct references into the fire. Uh, Empty Sky is a really great song. I love Mary's Place, too. We can all agree Mary's Place is great. Uh, and it's sort of this this ode to uh, to music as, as prayer, too. You know, drop the needle and pray. Uh, turn it up and let it rain and all these sort of shouted, re- repetitious shouting in, in the song. It's, it's a really good one. Uh, in The Rising, uh, again, as Dan mentioned, there's so much great stuff happening in, in that song. So I... Um, Again, it's it, it's a little different than what I expected. It's not quite what I mean by that. I guess is, is it's, it's not quite the the pure sort of return to rock E Street band sound. There's still some experimentation happening here with I think the way Bruce is interacting with the band. It's the first time they played together in quite a long time, and I I I, I, I do wish it were just slightly leaner and more focused uh, from an overall perspective looking at the songs but there are undeniably powerful moments on here in which bruce does some of his best writing certainly in the past uh, decade leading up to this album i have kind of very similar feelings uh associated with this album that, that dan does and of course i had a very different experience i was a dc person but uh not a New York City person, but I, I saw the wreckage in our part of the country as well. I was much younger, of course. Um, and so when this came out, uh, it, it, it does hit a, a certain spot for you. Um, and I, I actually, you know, he stole a lot of my thunder uh, talking about the rising, the song itself. I, I, I don't think I can add anything on to what he said about that. So I guess the the one thing I do want to focus on is what I actually would say is my favorite song on the record, and then it will probably make my top five at the end for just his his normal discography tracks, and that's counting on a miracle. Now I'm normally reluctant to credit Bruce anytime he, he he does that dropping my G's thing on a song title, <laughs> you know, counting on a miracle, working on a dream, you know, I, I don't know, for some reason it's like, oh, usually it sounds like it's like f- forced uh, forced colloquialism and I don't like it, but this is a fantastic song, it's kind of a more structurally ambitious song than anything I, I'd heard him do for a very long time um, and again, it felt so right for the times precisely because it did not attempt to be directly about like, you know, we're in a troubled era. People have died. I miss someone. He did. He addressed a lot of those issues on other songs, but here he's just talking about like, you know, there's no storybook story. There's no ever never ending song or happy ever after. Uh, I'm going to put my faith in you. I'm counting on a miracle. And, and the miracle that he's counting on is, is her, is, 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 is the girl, you know, who's, you know, the, the sleeping beauty who's going to awake from her dream. And I, I think it's one of his most impressive rock and roll tracks and also song constructions of yeah, it's just the last 20 years of his career. Sleeping beauty awakes from a dream. Lover's kiss on her lip Your kiss was taken from me Now all I have is this Your kiss, your kiss, your touch Your touch, your heart, your heart Your strength, your strength Your hope, your hope, your faith Dream, your dream, 
fantastic song. It's my favorite song on this album. And I guess if you know you you, you forced me to rate it, I don't know if if the Rising is the best album from this latter part of his career, which we are going to, and, and I regret to tell you this, listeners, we're going to take this one at a faster clip because it's just so much. It's funny, you know, Bruce Springsteen, after spending like, you know, a decade putting out five albums, you know, he, he suddenly become prolific. And so now we have so much more material to work through. And yet not all of it is as good as I, I think it should be. That The one that comes up next is, of course, Devils and Dusk. And I, I and I want to ask Dan to open this. Uh, Dan, why do you hate Devils and Dust? Because uh, it's actually not a bad album. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I think it competes with Joe as as sort of his worst album. <laughs> there are some good songs on it. Um, you know, Long Time Coming, Maria's Bed, and Leah. There, those are all good songs. Um, I don't like one of the songs on here. All the way home. Um, Bruce had given it to Southside Johnny. Southside Johnny, yeah. Yeah, and the Southside Johnny version is really good. And Bruce go, takes this up tempo, which could have been an interesting decision, but his vocals on it are just bizarrely nasally, and they they just kind of kill the thing. But um, I, I just think the whole rest of the album is is more or less forgettable, and you know, Devils and Dust is just kind of doesn't do it, and as a title track, and it it sort of goes downhill from there. I, I think it's better than Dan thinks it is. I I almost think it's sort of Tom Joe improved upon. Uh, Vastly improved upon. Yeah, yeah. Brendan O'Brien is back to produce, and that's a that's a massive difference from Tom Joad. The production here is better. The songs do not sort of sort of meld together in this formless mush. Uh, they are distinctive from each other. I think the title track "Devils and Dust" is very good. Uh, Dan mentioned "Long Time Coming." That's probably my favorite track on the album. I'm not sure the second half of this holds up as well as I'd like it to. But when I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, Bruce trying to recapture uh, or, you know, do Nebraska again over and over again in, in different ways, Devils and Dust, to me, might be the most successful attempt he's had at, at, at doing a full-on sort of, or at least mostly acoustic-type album uh, since Nebraska. I mean, I, I think for me, the song on this album that stands out the most is Maria's Bed. And, and I have to say, the lyrics don't quite make it the lyrics are just a little bit too uh, corn pone, you know, know, cliched, like I'm up on sugar mountain. I've crossed the sweet blue seas and the Valley of love and, you know, stuff like that. Um, But the music is fantastic. And I do like the idea, like, you know, I, I, I've been through, through hell. I've, I've come through high water. I've, I've, I've walked around the world, but you know, I stay up at night and what keeps me going is the thought of sleeping in Maria's bed. You know, getting back home to my girl and in sharing my bed with her, and that 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 that's what will will keep me alive. And and I think the music really does live up to that. I'm in a bullshit mountain cross, sleepless sea. I walk the valley of living tears and mystery. I gotta run and look and get myself up a day. Take 
I joked about this. This sounds like an Eddie Vedder solo album, <laughs> which which is funny because of course Brendan O'Brien, you know, is the you know, Pearl Jam's producer among other fantastic and famous bands. Uh, but I think I think that that, that works because this is uh, much more sort of sprightly and adroit, you know, semi-solo brew. It's not solo. For those of you who haven't heard the album, you'll hear some clips, I assume, here in the show. But like, it's not like him sitting alone in a in a darkened room with an acoustic guitar. It's it's fully orchestrated. You know, it, it's just not it's not the E Street Band. It's not a big rock album. It's a much quieter album than that. And I, I don't love it, but I certainly don't hate it. And that's the big problem that I'm going to have with so many of the remaining Bruce Springsteen albums. I don't love them, and I don't hate them. <laughs> so, like, for example, the next one is, like, he decided, okay, this is this is, this is an interesting one. He, you know, apparently he was listening to, uh, like, a lot of, I guess, Pete Seeger uh, songs or old folk songs. And, you know, what's the story? It's like his daughter was like, yeah, that's nice. And then he decided, okay, well, I guess I'm going to start recording these songs. Never take cues from your daughter. Uh, never take cues from people under the age of 12, I think, is a generally good rule. Uh, and he, he records We Shall Overcome, the Seeger Sessions. This is a huge left turn for Springsteen. Nobody on the E Street Band plays on this record. It's uh, almost, I guess, practically sort of – uh, is it an Irish folk band? It's not quite the Pogues, but it's it's not quite bluegrass either. It's it's him covering a bunch of songs, nothing original here, covering a bunch of songs that were brought to his attention by hearing Pete Seeger cover them. And a lot of people love this album, and they love the subsequent live in Dublin album that accompanied it. Um, but my criticism is is that, well, you know. Uh, what was our, our our friend Nick Gillespie's objection to to Pete Seeger? He said he says like I liked all the other folkies, but I hated Pete Seeger because Pete Seeger lacked subtlety. <laughs> well, I, I think some of the problem with these covers is they lack subtlety too. You hear them, you hear the first few songs, you hear old Dan Tucker and Jesse James and Ms. McGrath, and you're like, yeah, wow, this is Bruce doing something completely different. Big, you know, high, howling vocals, very hoarse, and lots of banjos, lots of mandolins. It's a great sound. But then the entire album sounds like that. And I don't want to sound like a dick, but I'm just saying that there's a reason that Bob Dylan covered almost all of these songs much earlier in his career and did a better job with them. It's because Bob Dylan was a more subtle interpreter of these sorts of folk tunes. Bruce Springsteen doesn't come from the folk tradition. He doesn't have a natural feel for it. That said, the instrumentation is peerless and flawless. This is an album that I think most people are going to love, and my objections to it are going to sound bizarre <laughs> and alien to anybody who's listening to this. I, I actually agree with Jeff uh, about virtually all that. And um, the, the, you know, the thing about the, the, the album itself, The Sessions, they sound good. I mean, they're, it's fast. It's quick. Um, I, I don't think they rehearsed together beforehand, so it's, it's far looser than you normally hear Bruce because he is a perfectionist, largely when it comes to what it actually is, is released on the studio albums. But the degree to which you're going to like this is really equal to your interest in Pete Seeger and old-time folk music. And to be honest, I'm not a real big fan so not just the Seeger Sessions, but also the Live in Dublin, though also interesting to hear. 
Um, it's a lot. It's a lot to get through, and the songs are largely, I want to say monochrome, it's not quite the right word to use, but after you've heard a few, you've pretty much heard the way the rest of the album's going to go. I gotta tell you, it's a really exciting sound. It's a very vigorous and gripping sound, like very hotly well-produced, like mandolins, banjos, you know, snare drums. We're not talking about like Max Weinberg, four on the floor, boom, boom, <laughs> but like you know, shuffle drums, lots of snare, lots of hi hat. It's really, it's 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 again, as I said, it's it's half bluegrass, it's half Irish folk, and that is a nice left turn for Springsteen, but there isn't nearly enough variation on it and and i am a guy who loves folk music i was raised in that you know that was my, that was my dad i've said it a billion times on this show we've heard the stories before you know my dad loved the clancy brothers and stuff like that and the kid when i was a kid i i was i was weaned on it um but this is okay but only okay to me dan yeah i mean a lot of the songs because obviously the the songs from the kind of folk songbook here and some of this is kind of spiritual music and some of it is kind of irish folk and some of it is just old-time americana uh some of this is some of the same stuff that i also my dad listened to which the only time you will hear me say this in in any of the any of these shows because my dad hated rock um but you know it's songs like erie canal and and you know uh and old dan tucker and and this is the kind of thing he wasn't listening to pete seeger uh but you know, the real old kind of Irish folk and, and, and whatnot. Um, I think this is a fascinating era. Um, I really like it. Uh, it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Um, you know, I think something like, Oh Mary, don't you weep the way he does it is tremendous. Not everybody is necessarily going to, going to buy a white guy singing that song, frankly, but, um, but it does, I think it does work. Um, I think live in Dublin is fascinating to me. Just because, and, and the versions of the Seeger session songs that are on there are more or less sound mostly the same way as they do in the studio album. Um, but Bruce does a lot of he does a lot of total reimagining uh, with the Seeger sessions band of some of his own songs. Well, actually, um, you know, he, he actually does an improvement on on some of the uh, the songs from the Seeger sessions. It's going to sound it's funny, but one of the things I really do love from this era is is hearing Bruce Springsteen and the Seeger sessions band playing the old black gospel spiritual protest song "Eyes on the Prize." Yeah. You keep your eyes on the prize, oh Lord, oh Lord, uh, with big horns and all that, and you're like. He's a white guy from New Jersey. It shouldn't work. It works. Freedom's name is mighty sweet. And soon we're gonna make. Keep your eyes on the Hold on. I got my hand on my gospel clock. Won't take nothing for my journey. Keep your eyes on I'm really fascinated by the, and there is, there is, of course, the one original song on, uh, on live in Dublin, which, as we'll see a few times here, Bruce puts a live 
original out and then later on goes back into studios it for a for a later release but uh which is american land mm-hmm. um which i think is actually a really good song and it is, it is this kind of you know rolling in there about about uh the country being built by immigrants and whatnot and but Bruce does these, he, he, you know, he reimagines Atlantic City, Blinded by the Light. Uh, I love his versions of Highway Patrolman um, and Open All Night. He basically does this almost like a big band song. I mean, that, the way he does Atlantic City, you know, that meet me tonight in Atlantic City. It, it's, a, it's a whole different change of the sound. And I, I just think it's particularly for an older artist who's been doing these songs the same way for a lot of years to remake them in a way that isn't just sort of a boring Bruce with an acoustic guitar thing, but is a totally different way of reworking familiar songs and making them fresh. I, I think it's wonderful. So I, I can't say enough to recommend that you at least go out and, and try live in Dublin. Not everybody's going to want it, but uh, it really is. It's a fascinating thing to check out. And I, I think it really works. So, Bruce, having had enough of his weird uh, uh, folkabilly left turn, uh, goes back to straight-up rock and roll music. And the name of that album is Magic 2007. And by the way, you know, while we're here, I'm going to just take this moment to point out, what is it with the terribleness of Bruce Springsteen album covers during this era? I, I, the last time I can remember there being an even semi-decent Bruce Springsteen album cover, it was uh, 1987 with Tunnel of Love. I think the bolo tie gets him off the hook there because, you know, you know, you, you got to love Bruce Springsteen wearing a bolo. Uh, <laughs> but ever since then, uh, he's, for a top-tier artist, been famous for just terrible album covers that always feature his face. Why? Yeah, it's kind of karmic revenge in a way for um, Craig, because the greetings from Asbury Park. Bruce famously has the, the this old the postcard, postcard, yeah, right. And the story goes that, that 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 the record label had a policy that you absolutely had to put the artist's face on the front cover of a of a debut album so people would know what he looked like, right? Are you and, oh, that's hilarious. And, and they 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 tell this, and I think this is actually in Peter Carlin's biography of Bruce, which is wonderful, by the way. And, and I, I mean, I, I second what Jeff said about the autobiography, but Carlin's book is great, too. And he tells the story that, that you know, Mike Appel is like, OK, well, we got to have take take Bruce into the record label to have, you know, them explain the facts of life to him that this isn't how things work. So first they go into the guy at, at Columbia who does the album covers. Right. And, and they walk in and Bruce does his little pitch. Hey, I got this postcard. I want to put this vintage postcard on the cover of my album. And the guy sits back in his chair and opens a desk drawer, and it turns out that he's a collector of vintage postcards. <laughs> so Bruce has the sale right there. He gets his postcard on the album cover, and as, I guess, some sort of karmic revenge for that, he spends the whole second half of his career with just boring pictures of Bruce on the cover of the album. <laughs> well, Magic isn't an entirely boring album, actually. I mean, it's definitely his sort of attempt to reclaim radio relevance in an era where rock is dying and radio doesn't mean a thing anymore and i think that's of course why the first song on the album is radio nowhere right you know it's basically saying like well what's the point of even doing this but of course it's a straight up rock anthem it's him trying to go back to sort of guitar heroics Satellite crushing the last lone American eyes. This is real. 
say I I think this is a you know, as I said my complaint about these records is that they're not bad and they're not great. Well, this actually airs more on the side of being you know, legitimately very, very good. Yeah, I'll go to bat for uh, Magic. This is likely my favorite post-Tunnel of Love release. And musically, musically, it's the album I thought The Rising would be. Uh, there's a little less experimentation here from a, from, a, from a songwriting perspective and some of the loops that were used on, on The Rising here and there. Uh, lyrically, it's pretty pointedly political, um, you know, about the government, the government fooling us and doing things behind our back and the Iraq war. Um, and Bre I think Brendan O'Brien's back for this one. Uh, either way, it sounds like he's back, which is kind of the point that they've sort of yeah, extended his, uh, the way, the way his production sounds. So, so some of the production here is a little compressed, like a song, like your own worst enemy, which I, I like an awful lot. The production is compressed. Everything It's hard to pick out everything happening that the E Street Band is doing because of the way it's its produced. There are a few moments on this album that are very almost Brian Wilson-esque. Uh, Your Own Worst Enemy has some kind of Beach Boy-style harmony vocals. Now your own worst enemy has come to town. Your own worst enemy has come. Summer uh, also has that Beach Boys sound to it in some places. Pop songs. I'll Work For Your Love is one I, I just think that it's it's really a testament to his craftsmanship as a songwriter. There's a lot of really neat pop craftsmanship in I'll Work For Your Love and some of the piano parts that are happening. Magic, the title track, has this very Western feel to it, which will kind of come back in a few albums uh, Radio Nowhere is a great song, a great single. Uh, big space for all these big Max Weinberg drum fills. Uh, Terry's song, which is a uh, uh, song for his longtime personal assistant who had passed away. It's a beautifully personal song uh, to end magic as well. This is, uh, as Jeff alluded to, it is kind of a rock record. I mean, it is a rock record. It's, it's, I don't know if it's pointed to radio. I don't know if anyone had hopes of getting stuff like this played on, uh, you know, top 40 type stations at this point. Almost certainly not. Um, but I think it's a little more accessible than even even The Rising in, in parts. I like Magic an awful lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to add a ton here to what you guys said. I think this is an album that has a lot more to say musically than lyrically. Um, I think it's also an album that's greater than the sum of its parts. Like, there aren't that many songs besides Radio Nowhere, uh, which has a wonderful guitar uh, hook. I, there aren't that many of these that I kind of like, oh, I really want to listen to this song, but it holds up better as, as a full album. Uh, Living in the Future, I think, has, has the wonderful keyboard stuff. I think the most interesting lyrically is actually Girls in Their Summer Clothes, where Bruce is kind of doing this musing on, you know, late middle age and watching the girls go by. 
Um, but uh, it, it, it's a good album. I think the biggest problem that we we have to face here when we're dealing with the latter part of Bruce Springsteen's career is, well, what's the relevance of a person like Bruce Springsteen to this moment in pop history? We're we're well into the late 2000 aughts, 2009, and well, you know, top 40 has moved beyond him. You have an entrenched you know, group of super fans who are going to buy anything he does. And in fact, you know, the irony is that all these records always immediately, the week they're released, they go to number one on the Billboard charts. But if you know anything about how the record industry has gone over the past 20 years, <laughs> that you doesn't know that take doesn't, much. <laughs> doesn't mean much anymore. Like 50,000 copies some weeks, you're able to get to number one. Probably less than that in many exactly. weeks. Exactly. And, and you could sell 2 million copies in one week and you'd still be aced out by Michael Jackson's Thriller if it was 1983. <laughs> That's the difference between 1983 and 2013. So all these these albums, these albums are all next. They're all number one hits, right? But you know, does anybody really remember working on a dream? I'll tell you this. Uh, the meaning I find from Springsteen in this latter half of his career, and it's not his fault. It's just that we're in a different world now, right? Um I find lots of songs on these records that I find that are good, but there's a lot that's generic too, and there's a lot that feels like it's just he's recycling his ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you one that I absolutely adore, though, is from Working on a Dream, 2009. Now, this is an album that actually a lot of fans don't like, uh, but I think it's okay. Uh, and I love Outlaw Pete, okay? A lot of people hate this song if they're Supers fans. <laughs> I love Outlaw Pete. You know why I love Outlaw Pete? I love Outlaw Pete because I love the Wild, the Innocent, and the E Street Shuffle. You're gonna give me an eight-long, multi, eight-minute-long, multi-part epic with strings, and like crazy balladry and crazy, like you know, like you know, different things going on, so, you know, about like some Wild West rebel. Well, that's exactly what he was doing in 1973 and 1974. And you know what? This song is fantastic. Pistol pull the trigger and shout it, let it stop. He drew a knife from his boot through it and pierced and through the heart. Then smiled as he lay in his own blood, dying in the sun. Whispered in pizza, we cannot undo. Things we've done. You're You know, I, I actually thought I was going to have to defend Outlaw Pete because nope. I also like this song. And I, I like the, you know, the lyrics of it are yet again, Trace Bruce's idea that you can't escape, you know, your deeds and stuff. But, but, but I will say I cannot possibly defend the decision to open the album with an eight and a half minute cowboy opera. You uh, know what? Why not? Particularly because the rest of the album is actually quite poppy. 
it's surprisingly poppy. I think songs like Surprise, Surprise, uh, Working on a Dream, Kingdom of Days. I mean, Working on a Dream is very obviously, you can see here, the shift from, you know, angry Bush-hating Bruce to optimistic Obama. Obama Bruce, right? Yeah, and, and, right. And he does that, I think, at the, I think he does that at the Super Bowl show, which the, the Super Bowl halftime show is so important to Bruce that he devotes an entire chapter of his autobiography <laughs> to it, which is funny for a guy who's done so many monumental shows, right, in this 15-minute set, but it, it's the Super Bowl. Um, so, but yeah, surprise, surprise I, is one that I think people should should go back and listen to. It's, it's, that, that's a song that, that maybe with a younger artist in a different era could have been a big pop hit. Well, surprise, surprise, surprise. Yes. It's just a small, quiet song, but I, I love Tomorrow Never Knows uh, from this album, uh, which is just, it's just a, it, it's got this, you know, it's, it's mellow. It's mostly kind of acoustic, but it's, it's a wonderful track. I, when I saw the name Tomorrow Never Knows, I was expecting a psychedelic freak out, of course, because I know the Beatles, uh, and I, I, I was, I was not given what I was expecting with that song. Here's another one that I'm kind of, kind of ashamed to confess that I like is, I, because even the title alone sets my teeth on edge. I, I really like Queen of the Supermarket. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> That's a terrible no, song. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, you guys. This is just one of those things that's going to have to like you know follow me like a blot of shame. I like it. You know, he's, he's talking about that hot girl who's the bag lady at the supermarket or whatever. Yeah, you know what? I'm into it. I don't mind it. I don't think it, I don't think it's too poppy or anything like that. Um... Uh, it should go on his greatest hits. So after that, the next the next stop is Wrecking Ball. And and first of all, I just want to put in a good word for you know the the title track appears here as a studio track, um, but it is first done live at Giant Stadium uh, as it, the song is directly dedicated to the tearing down of Giant Stadium. Go look up that version. Uh, it's so much better, and it's it's it it is perfect to the occasion. It's Bruce, you know, talking about you know the the everything this place has seen and you know if you got the guts mister if you got the balls bring on your wrecking ball um the album itself is bruce trying to be topical again and it it works okay it doesn't it doesn't work obviously as well as the rising but he's writing about the you know the credit crisis and all um you can see what happened that he's starting to stretch for material because he puts american land and land of hope and dreams on here both of which are wonderful songs but um but have been done better live by Bruce already. And um, officially uh, released live. That's the yes. thing. Yes. Um, you know, he's got a, an experiment with hip hop here called Rocky Ground, which is, it's okay. You know, the, 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 this, is, this is a good album, but it's not, it's nothing special. It's not as good, I think, as the two previous ones. Um, the big title track, a uh, big, or rather lead single, We Take Care of Our Own. It's kind of, I feel like there's an, you know, 
for Land of Hope and Dreams, Bruce splices in a Clarence sax solo because uh, Clarence has died by this point. Um, but we take care of our own. I just, you know, you should sit down, close your eyes and listen to this song and listen for the Clarence sax solo in the middle. And it's not there. And you can feel its absence. And if you've listened to enough Bruce songs, you know what that Clarence sax solo would sound like. You can play it in your head. From Chicago, New Orleans, from the muscle of the bone. From the shotgun shack to the superdome. Rainbow Hill, the Calvary State home. Uh, we take care of our own it's a good song it you know it it busts some rock but it's that that really struck me when that came out is that the sax solo should be there and it's missing i think to me there you know the stretching for material comment is 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 well taken because i, I hear like land of hope and dreams and i'm like well you know what you you had your definitive take on this back in live in new york city that almost sounded like a studio cut frankly why did you need to re-record it what what was gained by the, he's, he's going to do this again of course on the next album with another song from the live in nyc show um the only other thing i'll say is that i really do like the last song on this record we are alive which is again you know sort of a topical kind of a, a thing at least it feels that way it's basically saying you know we're alive despite all of this um but this to me you know you know this and the next album for me are like the moment where you really start asking yourself <clears throat> what is the point of a bruce springsteen album is he just working because he is dispositionally and constitutionally incapable of not working because like if he if he stops he'll die he's like the shark that has to keep swimming in order to breathe because you know you sort of get that impression with Springsteen like like he's he's so restless he's got to do something he's got to you know, he's playing a show he's recording an album he's doing something somewhere or else he he doesn't even exist in his own mind he cannot simply sit there in repose whenever he's done that it, it, it seems to have gone terribly for him so i i wonder about wrecking ball and then particularly about high hopes which is like one of those albums where you know it, it, it isn't inoffensive to me but it's it's an album i think dan aptly described it when we were discussing it before the show is like it's, it's an album where you, you say like why does this exist it's almost entirely like it's tracks disc five basically is what it is it, it, it's a bunch of older songs uh that he's re-recorded some of them are actually outtakes that date back to like you got danny federici who had died i believe in 2008 and of course clarence clemens are on some of these tracks which means that they're old and they've been you know in the in the can for a while and that he simply added to them and then he there's even like a re-recording of the ghost of tom Joad. Same song from the album The Ghost of Tom Joad, but this time it's it's extended. It's basically the live version that he had been playing with Tom Morello on tour. And that's okay, but it's a song that you've already heard before. And then the other one, and, and this is the thing that I can't 
necessarily get too angry about is that he finally gives you a studio version of American Skin, 41 Shots, one of his greatest out songs from this era. And this version is good, too. The song itself is so structurally sound that you probably couldn't even record a poor version of it. Uh, but again, it feels just weirdly unnecessary. Hmm. And I feel like yeah, the, I mean, its entire album is weirdly unnecessary. Yeah, I feel like High Hopes is, among other things, the most ironically named version <laughs> album. It's so unambitious. You, you, you think you should have called it Low Expectations? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's got two covers on there. I, I mean, I, I enjoy listening to this album much more than I would enjoy listening through, like, Jode or Devils and Dust. But every other Bruce album up to that point, you, got, you, you understood why he felt he needed to make this album at this time. And this one really feels like the contract said another album was due. Let's pull some stuff from the vault. We'll do some stuff with Morello. We'll put it out there, and I'll go back to writing my book. <laughs> Which he did, by the way, publish the next year. That's when the autobiography, Born to Run, came out. And um, you know, I'll just say what I said before again. It's really good. Hey, I have the audiobook version of it, and he actually does a really great, creditable job of, of narrating it himself. <laughs> um, but, of course, then what comes next after that is – kind of a follow-up to the Born to Run album, right? Uh, he's gets, he gets on kind of an autobiographical kick. He releases that big river box set, and then he announces what I think is probably the biggest mistake of his career. This is the River Tour. You know, he'd been in this, this mode where, <clears throat> I think in 2009, he, he had done the shtick at the end of the year where he was playing, like, each of his albums all the way through. So he like on one show he'd play all of Born in the USA front to back. And then he, he got crazier and he did like the Wild, the Innocent and Greetings from Asbury Park. And then near the end of the year he did The River, which is a double album. It's enormous. It's a huge lunker of a thing to get through on any night on a, on a concert basis. So he releases The Ties That Bind, which is this big five CD and DVD set great if you're really into like your archival era bruce from the 80s 1980 1979 you should have it but then he decides to do like okay we're gonna play the river every single night um which is just kind of not a good idea because first of all that's like you know an hour and a half of time that's taken up and second of all there's a lot of songs on there that aren't really that fantastic nobody needs to hear drive all night for eight minutes every <laughs> single night who wants that you know what, though, I'll say I went and saw that tour, and since since the river was the uh, the first Bruce album that I that I right. experienced, and I took my daughter who was sixteen at the time to that, I I felt like that was that was time very well spent. Yeah, and, of course, you 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 having your nostalgia feels. Yeah, and 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 as I as I think I mentioned on the last show, I mean I think the the version that he did of the price you pay on that tour was particularly good. Right. Well, the price you pay is probably the most underrated song on that album, other than Stolen Car. But, you know, this is obviously – here's the thing you've got to realize about Springsteen at this point. He's feeling his age. I think to, the, to, to this day he is. That's why he's not unafraid to look back anymore. So he, you know, he does the autobiography, which is a very self-lacerating and, you know, and, and very blunt sort of assessment of who he is. The thing I like about it is that he, he doesn't really mince words about his failings, not just his specific mistakes. He'll talk about those, his divorce, things like that. But he also talks about his more generalized flaws. He talks about the fact that he knows that he's an egotist, that he's a control freak, that he's an obsessive, that you know he's a self-mythologizer. Uh, he, he's admirably frank about who he is and so it, it's kind of a natural development that, that what he does after that is uh wait did you guess this was coming yeah that's right it's a broadway show baby 
Bruce Springsteen goes Broadway. Jazz hands. That's right. Springsteen on Broadway. He booked like a small theater on Broadway, and he just did one of these sort of like solo, like talking guitar and piano performances. You know, every single night, five nights a week, he'd get up there on stage like he was a paid member of a performing troupe, and he would, you know, tell the stories of his life and play the songs. And, you know, to an absolutely riveted, lavishly adoring audience. And this sounds like it could be insufferable, absolutely insufferable. And I understand why you, the listener, might listen to me describing it and say to yourself, what is this intolerable bullshit? I get it. But it's actually hugely moving. And I also understand that it's all patter. It's all shtick. This is all scripted, right? He's obviously played this same show like a hundred different times. It's a Netflix special. You don't even have to go buy the album. If you own Netflix, go look it up. Springsteen on Broadway. You can see a recorded performance of it. Um, But the thing about Springsteen's entire career, his entire performing career, is that it's always been theater. If you thought that when he was telling you that story and growing up back in 1978, <laughs> that he was telling you something new that you hadn't heard before, or if he was telling you that story, you know, in the E Street Shuffle, the long versions of the E Street Shuffle in 74 and 75 about how he finally met the big man and how he met Clarence on a dark and stormy night, he was giving you something new. No. This is stuff that he practiced in his mirror, in his bathroom, in sound checks, on stage, over and over again. It's always been theater. And it's always been some half truth, half lies, you know, half garbage and half, you know, golden golden, you know, reality. That's what Springsteen was always about. And I think you get that really distilled down to its essence on this double C D or TV special that uh, I know it sounds like the hardest sell I'm going to make on this entire show, but I, I found it profoundly moving. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And, and the practice element, too, of course, is why it's so ironic that, uh, you know, Robert De Niro and Taxi Driver, right, he steals it. You talking to me? You talking? He stole that from Bruce. Bruce used to do that on stage, right? And he would look back and forth between the audience and, like, looking for somebody behind. You talking to me? You talking to me, Cleveland? Uh, and and you know so that was always there, uh, always there a part of his uh, his stage act, not just his stage show, but his stage act. I guess that brings us to the final for now entry in the Bruce Springsteen discography, and I'm really glad that we end with this album because I wouldn't want to end on a down note <laughs> or or even just sort of like a valedictory retrospective note. And that's Western Stars came out last year. Uh, for once, there's actually a good Bruce album cover. It's not his face. It's a horse, right? Nice, lovely horse with a blue sky, very Western. I think this is actually remarkably good. What do you guys think about Western stars? Like uh, it a lot. Yeah, I'll let Scott go. Yeah, like like it a lot. And, um, you know, I, as Jeff mentioned, you know, I don't know if Springsteen is like a shark that will work forever, but if this were a final statement, which as we record it is, um, it wouldn't be a bad final statement at all. Just, just going that, working in a dream felt like he was recording that album with the wrong band. Like the E Street Band wasn't right for that material, and, and then Wrecking Ball, he wasn't working with them uh, totally uh, exclusively on that album. There are a lot of different people who end up playing a Wrecking Ball. So this is uh, almost a surprise for an album like this to come, A, at this stage of his career, and B, considering what came before it. 
These are really good songs, story songs, character portraits. Um, there's a lot of anger on Wrecking Ball, especially on the first half of the album. It sort of fades away here on Western Stars. It's a little more laid back, a little more stories about redemption as opposed to anger. The title track is really nice. Uh, the story of a Hollywood actor who used to be big and uh, worked with big stars and John Wayne, and now he's doing you know commercials for credit cards. Um, it sounds hackneyed, but it's not. It's pulled off really well. The distant pedal steel in the background. Once I was shot by John Wayne It was towards the end that one scene's brought me a thousand drinks Set me up and I'll tell it for you, friend Here's to the cowboys Riders in the whirlwind Tonight the western stars are shining And the western stars are shining bright again Till at the riders on sunset Are smothered in the sand of Sunshine is a really neat song. Reminds me of almost like a like a Jimmy Webb kind of song. Uh, little shuffle beat, some piano late in in, in the track. Uh, there goes my miracle. Kind of leans back on more of the sixties R and B kind of classic pop feel. It's a really well done album and surprising at this stage because as Jeff I think was sort of alluding to these last few albums. You look at uh, Magic and Working in a Dream and Wrecking Ball. It's like what is the point? What's going on here? How does it fit? This is the one album from the past few that really feels like it has a, a, a purpose and a, and a point and a, and a place in the in the music in the music universe, so to speak. Uh, it's really a surprise to me how much I enjoyed this album from uh, what a seventy year old at this point, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I mean, I really liked uh, Sleepy Joe's Cafe, Tucson Train, and the. Uh, and the, the the title track also like Wayfair. I mean, I I don't have much to add to what you guys said. I think this is a it's it's a nice album. It's a very different side of Bruce, uh, and he really executes it well. Uh, can we actually say that we hope for continued relevance for Bruce in the future, <laughs> given this album? I think we can actually. Uh, if if the last album he had put out had been like I don't know, working on a dream. Or uh, you know, God forbid, high hopes or something like that. I, I would have been pretty pessimistic, but this one, this one, this one has resonance for me, and uh, I'm I'm just so grateful that it, it it you know well I'm grateful that he continues to exist. You know, like one of the things that you can't avoid when you think about Springsteen these days is 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 the way mortality has increasingly you know encroached upon not only the band with the death of Danny Federici and of Clarence Clemens, um, but on his songwriting thoughts, you know, and, and on his sort of, you know, what, what moves him to, to write these days. I mean, hey, he's getting up there in years after all. Uh, uh, this one doesn't seem like he's slowing down. And that's a surprise for me. And that's, a, I guess, a very, very happy and upbeat way to end the show. 
There we are, the Political Beats Part 2 look at the career of Bruce Springsteen. And we come to the part of the show where uh, hosts give you the two albums you should own and the five songs you really need to hear from our artists. Just as last time, we'll give you the two albums, yes, but five songs from studio releases, proper albums, and five songs unreleased, B-sides, live tracks, uh, DJ's choice, so to speak. Dan McLaughlin, Senior Writer National Review, you have the floor first. All right. Well, the two albums, if you've listened to this show by now, you you know it's going to be Born in the USA and The Rising. Um, five songs, uh, you know, I had to go with either Bobby Jean or No Surrender. I'm going with Bobby Jean. Um, the other the other studio tracks, I would say Living Proof, uh, The Rising, uh, Reason to Believe, uh, which I'll go with even though it, I prefer the live version a little better, uh, and Tunnel of Love. Um the outtakes and live performances, I'm going to pick None But The Brave. Uh, we talked about it a little before. We really, really need to go back to that one. Um, actually, two songs, the two songs that I've mentioned before from the that MTV uh, performance, Atlantic City and Light of Day, um, My Love Will Not Let You Down, uh, either the, the tracks version of the Live in New York City version will do equally well, uh, and Land of Hope and Dreams from, from Live in New York City. So my two albums, um, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do, and I guess I guess it's going to be Nebraska and Tunnel of Love. Uh, I can't quite I can't quite convince myself to put magic in in those two albums. I think it still is Nebraska and Tunnel of Love, but I again will pitch for Magic as a later career al- album, well worth checking out. Uh, songs, uh, Murder Incorporated. I talked about it. It's on the greatest hits. Uh, album. If you want to find it there, I, I think it's just really one of the best songs of his entire career. What a great performance by the E Street Band. Uh, Highway Patrolman from Nebraska. Uh, the title track from Tunnel of Love. Uh, I, I think Lonesome Day from The Rising is really a song to hear. And something from the past few albums. Uh, just use something from this last album. The title track from Western Stars, I, I think, is well worth seeking and shows that there is still a little bit of... Uh, a little bit left on the speedball, so to speak, of Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> maybe he, he maybe he can't throw it by you, but maybe he can turn it into a <laughs> screwball, and he'll just get you to whiff on it. Right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, my two my two actually are albums at least are the same as Scott's. It's Nebraska and it's Tunnel of Love. Now he's of course got a lot of other great albums, a lot of other great songs. You know, you've already heard my critique of Born in the USA, but. Uh, those are the ones I would go with as albums. Now, the songs, the actual official discography songs that I, the five I'd pick, are uh, Atlantic City from Nebraska, Dancing in the Dark from Born in the USA, Brilliant Disguise from Tunnel of Love, Counting on a Miracle from The Rising, and Outlaw Pete uh, from uh, Working on a Dream, which is an album that otherwise I really don't have that much time for. Uh, but you've heard, you know, why I like all of those songs uh, before, so I don't really need to elaborate upon them. Uh, for my outtakes, uh, the first one I'm going to mention is a song that we didn't discuss at all. It's another outtake from the Born in the USA sessions. It's from those home sessions, the same ones that uh, came up with Johnny Bye Bye. It's a song called The Klansman. And you know exactly why Bruce Springsteen did not release this, because he knew it would be misinterpreted. Because it's a song about a kid who's, you know, 
a guy comes into you know his home, sits down with his daddy across the kitchen table. They're having a big long talk. They're probably in like rural Indiana. And what's the moral of the story is that the clan is your friend, and the clan is going to stand up for you. And whoa, that's you know a, a dark little turn. And what it was obviously his attempt to do is to sort of get inside the head of like why would somebody think that the Ku Klux Klan is a good thing, you know? Because they're obviously you know hateful racists. But he's he's he's, he's like pointing out it's like well you know what you know you, you're sitting down there and you're a kid you're impressionable and you know you're, you're dirt poor. These guys come in and say they're going to help you out and they've got your best interests in mind. You can get uh, convinced to take some very dark turns and some very wrong paths uh it's a fantastic song and maybe when he does that eventual you know electric nebraska born in the usa box set release it'll finally come out it could never have been released at the time because it just would have been misinterpreted The second one I would mention is Shut Out the Light. Uh, it's a fantastic B-side from the Born in the USA sessions. Uh, should have been on the album, but I understand why it wasn't. It also really works well as the B-side to Born in the USA because it bookends the subject. It's uh, about a guy coming home from Vietnam, and it reminds me of uh, actually, of all things, As They Lay Dying by William Faulkner, where there's a character there. Uh, uh, Darl, who uh, is, uh, you know, was a veteran of World War One. You know, he he talks about how strange it feels to to be here back at home in Mississippi, and uh, remember what it was like to sleep out under the stars and in the mud and in the horrible rack and ruin of uh, France during you know the Western Front of World War One. Well, this is that same thing for a guy who comes back from Vietnam. He's probably like fighting at Quezon or something like that, and he has to adjust to living life back at home in maryland um the third one i'll mention i already talked about it as american skin 41 shots great song you've already heard it the live version in new york city is the one uh the, the fourth i'll mention is the wish i think dan actually covered this as as well as i ever could but it's the most wonderful song a son could ever write for their mom just a heartwarming song and then then finally uh Ironically enough, this is an outtake, but it, it may still be my favorite Bruce Springsteen song of all time, and that's Frankie. Talk softly tonight, little angel, into these shadows we're passing through. That's a beautiful song. His harmonica, the way the band just swells up underneath him. You know, one of those classic Bruce iconic one, two, three, four count-ins. Uh, this is romance in song. This is this is everything that I've ever, I've ever thought love was supposed to be about and you can find it in one song. 
is the Poetical Beats Look, Part 1, Part 2, at Bruce Springsteen. We thank our guests for these two episodes. Dan McLaughlin, senior writer at National Review. Find him on Twitter at Baseball Crank. Thank you, Dan, for your time at Insight on Bruce. Hope I don't sit around thinking about it, but I probably will. <laughs> and uh, Jeff Blair, we did one of the big ones. Our most requested episode is now in the books. Thank God for that. Now, somebody, somebody volunteered to do that second half of Genesis's career with us. Come on. Find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Subscribe to our feed. Get new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Or head right to nationalreview.com. Listen and leave reviews. Join the conversation on Twitter at political underscore beats. Find us on Facebook to political beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.